I can open a sketchbook from years ago. And it's, I, I think this is like this great form of time travel. You open to any page and immediately you're transported back. You think, oh, I remember that was such a hot day and the sun was beating down. And Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Alex Helkertz, a painter and storyboard artist living in Paris, France. Alex has worked for many years as a storyboard artist in Hollywood, including in some almost famous films. That was a hint for those who get it. I was excited to speak with him because I'm fascinated by storyboarding. For those of you who don't know, Briefly put, a storyboard is like a comic book version of a film, or at least its most important scenes. Useful to producers, directors, and the technical crew members responsible for visualizing and executing complicated scenes for the camera. This can be great for micro things like action, character positions, and camera angles, but also be used to answer macroscopic questions of mood, composition, storytelling, and pacing. So. How does this unique work experience affect Alex's art today? No person is just a single layer. We acquire many layers of personality in our journey through space and time. What we are today is linked inextricably to what we were yesterday and all the years leading up to this moment. With that in mind, I want to see if I can find an influence of storyboarding in Alex's paintings of cafes and streets in Paris. What lessons did he imbibe, and what is now simply a part of his muscle memory? As a self-taught painter, where does Alex pick up inspirations? We also take time to discuss his recent book, Sketching Techniques for Artists, in terms of both its content and what the experience was like to put it all together. This happens to be my longest episode so far. In the show notes is a list of topics that we have discussed chronologically, using which hopefully you can properly calibrate your listening experience. Before we get to the show, though, allow me a quick minute to give thanks to the wonderful supporters and the members who keep this show going. I'm going to try to say this in one breath. (laughs) Thank you, Becky, Ruth, Melanie, Vinayakam, Anne, Mark, Russ, Sanket, Santosh, Dinah, Mark, Etienne, Carr, Deborah, Emma, Martha, Ellen, Blake, Martha, Ashley, Kate, Mike, Molly, Melanie, and Henrico. Also thanks to Patricia, Johanna, Annie, Nick, Trinkar, Kosher, Michelle, and some others for buying me coffee this month. Being an independent podcaster means I do all the work around making this show pre- and post-production all by myself. But thankfully, we live in an age where it is now becoming possible for an independent creator to build a direct one-to-one relationship with their audience. Just you and just me without any middlemen. This equation between us works best when I'm able to share my best work with you directly on your device and you, the listener, are able to support me for my efforts. So if you like this episode, or any of the ones before, you can support me simply by buying me a coffee. That's it. It's just that simple. Visit the page using the link in my show notes to buy me a coffee. And while you're there, also check out the exciting, exclusive privileges I'm now starting to offer my monthly members. With that, 
let us now begin today's episode. We start by discussing storyboards and how they fit into the production of a film, and also what it's like to do this kind of work. Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast, Alex. I'm so happy to speak to you. You do a lot of things that I'm very jealous of, and a lot of things that I really want to find answers to. So I'm hoping this conversation will be super great for me, especially. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And it's always it's always good to have a very selfish reason to have a conversation. <laughs> so I appreciate your honesty. <laughs> I I feel like. All my conversations, or all my work, in fact, comes. It's primarily motivated by these selfish reasons, and it just happens that things click for me if those selfish reasons also match the selfish reasons of my audience. <laughs> and I've tried to, like, I've been in this business of putting content on the internet for fifteen years in different mm. ways. I've been a writer. I've been a cartoonist. I've been a pure artist, and now I'm also a podcaster. And it's been a crazy ride like on the internet getting attention keeping attention what works what doesn't work and for so long it's been about trying to meet people's needs trying to identify what is it that people want to make want to see what is it that they appreciate yeah and now i've kind of resigned myself maybe and hopefully it seems to be working resigned myself to the idea that i can't really meet people anywhere i have to have the, i have to make the best version of what i like and hope that that vibes with enough other people. That's yeah. That is, yeah, excellent. Yeah, that's a a very good sort of life philosophy. I think, um, you know, whether you're talking about a podcast or whether you're talking about fine art or or being a musician or a filmmaker or a writer or whatever it is, um, if you're chasing an audience, you're a couple steps behind. Um, it's always sort of a better, uh, philosophy, I think, to do, do what you love and then people will respond to it because it's coming from a place of kind of enthusiasm and curiosity. Um, and it's like a, you're genuinely interested in something and people who are also genuinely interested in similar things will find that. So I I completely agree with your approach. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like the internet has is shaping towards that nowadays. It there was a time when uh, virality seemed to be the only way to get somewhere. If you want to actually make money on the internet, if you want to be the you know even ten years ago the word content creator quite didn't quite exist. But whatever version of that we had in our minds, it was based around reaching the most number of people that you can, and then hope to monetize that that feature but now it seems like things are changing a little bit like you have we have better ways to directly connect with people even the idea of doing workshops online it's something that you're not necessarily even pitching to millions of or hoping to pitch to millions of people because that would be such a waste of your effort to try to reach out to, you you want to reach out to a core base that you know cares for your work and then you want to convert that to something by giving value to people who really want that value. So it's an it's a very interesting time on the internet, kind of accelerated by unpleasant uh, world <laughs> events. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I spend a lot of my time on Instagram. That's, that's, that's where I post a lot of my paintings and sketches. It's where I have a lot of conversations with, with people all around the world. Um, other artists, uh, people who like my stuff, you know, other artists that I love, I'll reach out to. Um, I use Facebook as well. I use a couple other, um, sort of platforms, but, you know, there is, there's kind of this tendency or, or I don't know, it, 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 you can get caught up in the numbers, you know, how many likes does something have? How many followers does something have? And I just, I don't know, that can be a very, uh, kind of obsessive rabbit hole that you fall down and, and very unhealthy. <laughs> um, and it's, it's sort of more interesting to, I mean, if you're going to dive into metrics and numbers and, and pay attention, to all that stuff, it's, it's more interesting to see how engaged an audience is. Um, I would rather have a smaller audience that's, that has more engagement. Um, I, I didn't get in social media and kind of doing things on the internet is, is a byproduct. Um, it's a way to show my stuff to, to more people, but I love to paint. I love to sketch. Um, and so this, this gives me a, a nice way to share that. And it's kind of a, it's kind of an intimate way to, to share that, um, to share your thoughts, to share, you know, a little bit of commentary on, on what you're doing or why. Uh, and you know, when people respond to that, you know, we have a little bit of a conversation, a little bit of back and forth. Um, it just, I love how it's sort of community building, um, you know, rather than thinking about numbers in terms of followers or whatever, it's, I, I really, I've always sort of seen this as, wow, this is kind of an interesting global community. Um, there's a lot of people that have similar interests or think about things in a, in a similar way. And it's really exciting to connect to people, um, and, you know, to meet if we can, um, you know, with the last year has been very strange. Um, but you're right. It's also, you know, doing stuff online has, is, is also a way to, like you said, to, to teach and to do workshops, um, for people who are unable to travel. Um, I mean, this last year, no one has been able to travel. Uh, but even, even in the best of times, travel can be expensive and, and time consuming. And so it's, it's really kind of amazing to do workshops over zoom or, you know, little demonstrations on Instagram or, or whatever the platform is. And suddenly you're interacting with people in real time. Um, that, that sort of the veil of the screen that separates us all dissolves a little bit. Um, so yeah. I, I, there's, there's a lot of positives that, that come out of it. Yeah. So true. Um, I'm thinking about, uh, we were just talking about being independent creators, like being a person who's putting their content on the internet and being accountable to your own personal interests. And I want to contrast this with, uh, how you have, you know, worked in a lot of creative fields, but within, within a network of people who are you are responsible to and people who give you some order of instruction to which you are working and then to please a certain core group of people also as 
and I'm referring to your work as a storyboard artist. So uh, I'd really love it if you could tell me what are the different sketching tasks in a typical workday for a storyboard artist? I'm trying to sort of see where you are in the hierarchy of how a movie gets made, you know, like there are people who give, who pass instructions to you and then you add information to what you get. And then that becomes instruction for someone else down further downstream. So I'm trying to get a sense of where this fits in and how it's part of creating what we see finally. Yeah. Um, you know, being a storyboard artist is such a, I mean, it's, it's a pretty cool job. <laughs> you, you draw pictures all day and you, um, you really are at the forefront of creating the visuals for a film. Um, I work primarily in feature films. I do, I also do a lot of TV commercials. Um, and I've, and I've done a few TV shows television usually has, at least in the States has a, a quicker schedule and a lower budget. Um, so there's not always time, uh, to storyboard things, but, uh, feature films use them a lot. And yeah, I'm, I'm often one of the first people hired after the sort of the script is done and, and a director is on board. Um, uh, sometimes I'm hired before a cinematographer, before anyone else in the art department. Uh, there's hundreds of people that typically work on a film. Uh, and it's nice to be kind of one of those first people where I can meet with a director and we can just sit in a room, uh, go through the script and start to visualize it, start to put visuals to these words on a page. Um, and for those who don't know what storyboards are, uh, storyboards are, it's almost a comic book version of a film. Um, they're, they're typically black and white sketches that, that illustrate scenes. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of work in, in kind of camera angles. I'll, I'll draw each individual shot. Um, and these are done for, uh, they're done for a number of reasons, but they're they're done to to visualize certain sections of of films that are that are the most visually complex, like anything that involves visual effects or special effects or a lot of choreography. If there's a big fight scene, a car chase, um, you know, those things are expensive to film. They take a lot of planning to do correctly and safely. Um, and storyboards are the easiest way to, to quickly visualize, uh, to, to get a visual down on a piece of paper that then you can sort of pass these out to every department on a film. Um, and everyone suddenly can see, oh, this is what we're going to do. I get it. We're going to, the car is going to enter from the left and it's going to come over here and, and do whatever it does. So, um, you know, it's really, it's a way to get the, the director's vision out of their heads onto a piece of paper. Um, cause you know, you can sort of talk about a scene or talk about, um, what you want something to look like, but until you attach a, an image to that, uh, everyone else is sort of imagining a slightly different version of this. So storyboards are a, a very clear way to communicate a director's vision. They're also a great way to, um, to kind of sell an idea if 
if somebody's not quite sure, well, you know, I don't know if we can pull this off or what would it look like? Or what if we did this, that, and the other, you can draw something and suddenly people get excited about it. Um, so it can be a way to, to sort of, uh, pitch an idea. Um, um, but yeah, you know, the, the storyboards will tell you, they'll tell you camera angles. They'll maybe tell you an editing style, a lighting style, um, just a, a, just a whole sort of visual language for the film. You talk about doing it at an initial stage when you're helping the, the script come into its visual form. So how you explained the, the role it fulfills, it's, it clears up a lot of logistics, like you save a lot of time, you save a lot of money, you save a lot of stress explaining things again and again to people. Uh, are these things also subject to a lot of editing then? And does that, you know, is the storyboard something you work on throughout the film or is it something that's there at an early stage and then you don't so much work on it again? Uh, every project is a little bit different. Um, it's mainly done at the beginning of a project. It's mainly done in sort of the three or four months before any filming takes place, but very often, almost in every single case, I'll continue working through at least part of the production um, because things are always changing. Um, you know, cinematographers will have a different idea and that will change the way we approach the visuals. Locations will be changed or discovered. Um, you know, any number of things can come into play. And so uh, any any given scene that I draw for a film, I'll, I will probably redraw five different times just because so much is constantly changing um, up until the day before they film it. Um, so, yeah, there's a it, it's a very collaborative uh, thing, which can be really, really fun. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, it is, it's all, it is changing a lot. It is evolving a lot and it's, it's fun to see to, it's fun to kind of be a part of that evolution and then see it filmed. And then, you know, finally months later, see it on screen. It's, it's like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's months and sometimes it's maybe even a year later. I, I Have you already left it behind? Is it sometimes a surprise to you that, you know, to, to see a scene and then maybe the the image that you drew strikes you again and you think about how you did it and how it's panned out finally. Yeah, it it can be fun. I mean, I I remember very clearly everything that I draw. <laughs> and so it is strange. Um I think I'm so visual that way that I, you know, I I look at a drawing and I can remember the song that was playing on the radio. <laughs> um, but yeah, when you see it in the cinema, um it is really fun to to see like oh okay i see they changed this shot or they adjusted that or wow this whole sequ sequence is exactly what we talked about and how we planned it out so it's um it is pretty fun to see yeah so working in this process of planning a scene and then thinking about you know you're talking about storyboarding especially for these dynamic scenes where there's a lot where there is a lot of central action that you want people to follow very quickly so it you can't really ask people to understand what you're doing you have to make them understand what's on the screen yeah are you working uh, when you when you're making these sketches uh, are you also working out of on on location in any way are you working primarily out of references how what is the bank of 
things that you use in order to create this? You use whatever you have available. Um, oftentimes, uh, you're doing the work so early that you don't know what the location will look like. You might not know who the actors will be. Um, you don't know. There's a lot you don't know. The location is is probably the most important thing. Um, and as and this is part of why you sort of revise these scenes over and over and over because you you draw it once and you think okay that's great I like that 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 sort of works and then um, a location will be chosen or a set will be built and it will it you'll have to adjust because it's like oh wait a minute now the door's in the wrong place and the the car can't come around that, you know, whatever, whatever the situation is, you have to then adjust the storyboards and um, make it so everything makes sense visually and keeps the same kind of momentum and the same level of excitement that, that, you know, the reason you're sort of telling this particular story in the first place, uh, you don't want to lose any of that. Um, but it just becomes more and more refined. Um, yeah. I'm also thinking when when we were talking about how storyboards compare to the final film. So I, I'm a big Pixar fan and I have this book uh, called The Art of Pixar and it has the color spreads that they would make of the, of the entire film. And it's like a storyboard in a lot of ways, although it doesn't necessarily talk about every key moment, but it talks about the flow of the movie with respect to how the color distribution on the screen is. Yeah. And it's, it's a very interesting thing to look at and then compare to the final film, because in a way it's telling me the story of the film, but in a slightly different language, it's not telling me all the detail. For example, I don't know the dialogue and I can't necessarily follow the plot, but I can see, I can see pacing. I can see time. I can see, how points of view change. And maybe because this other information is not there, I'm a little better able to appreciate the value of having a different point of view and how that might, how, how that visual information purely in itself is working. So um, are you also in a sense communicating that sense of time, like for different kinds of scene, we're talking about dynamic scenes and action scenes. There's, there's so much that you have to then come back into this storyboard so I'm thinking about how for different films, do you have to adapt your, your storyboarding style also in different ways? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that, that's one of, the, that's one of the, the parts of the process I love the most is I, I really think of it as each film has its own unique visual language. And you don't want to copy. You're always pulling influence from other films and paintings and music and whatever, whatever it is you have. Um, but ideally, you want your film to be its own unique thing. Um, and so, you know, I, I love talking to directors and cinematographers about visual language. Um, you know, what, what do certain things mean? What do colors, how do colors inform emotion? What's, what's our cutting style? What's the, you know, how subjective or objective do we want to be with the camera? Um, and every film will, will sort of dictate a different, a slightly different language. I absolutely love this. Um, and I love that process in animated films. You're talking about Pixar that they do this. It's called a color script 
they do it on animated films. It's it's not very common in live action films, but um, yeah, you sort of pick out, I don't know, however many, however many little drawings for that tell the story of the entire film. It might be 50 small drawings. Um, and you're right. You can read this and it's because they're color. And oftentimes, I mean, you can see the characters, you can see maybe some of the environment, but it's, it's called a color script and you read the color as you would read emotion. So you can see where things will be exciting. They may be bright and orange and red. You can see thing, where things might be sad and somber. You can see where it might be very scary and moody uh, or joyful or uplifting. You can read the, the flow of the emotions of a whole story over sort of a 90-minute film. And that's an incredible tool to, to start to build um, build the whole visual look of a movie because you're pacing it out. You're pacing out the emotions. Yeah. Thinking about this the pacing challenge, like what kind of skills do you, like how, how does one, how does one gain these skills? Is a lot of it on the job? Is a lot of it from things that you were already interested in? Yeah, I think so. Um, I loved movies from a very young age. Um, I always wanted to work on films, to make films. I went to film school in Los Angeles. Um, so I studied editing, writing, lighting, camera, um, directing. Um, I made short films. Uh, you know, and, and I love all kinds of different music. I love looking at paintings. Um, you know, you sort of, you're influenced by everything you can see. Uh, when you're working on films, you're, a lot of your influences are other films. So you kind of fall in love with the way different directors approach things, the way different cinematographers approach things. You have to know a lot about film history. Um, you don't have to, it helps. It's better <laughs> because you're going to be working with people who know this stuff, who know back, backwards of, Oh, in 1938, so-and-so did blah, blah, blah. And there's this great shot. And, and you know, you should be able to, be a part of that conversation. Um, uh, and the more, the more I worked on films, the more you see the mechanics of professional film production. And so then you can start to think about, well, is this possible to do? Is this physically possible? Or how, how would we do X, Y, Z? Um, you know, I remember working just having ideas shot down by cinematographers that'd be like well that's a pretty drawing but we can't get a crane through that doorway like oh i have never thought about that before <laughs> um so you know that that's also a challenge and something that i love because i love i love the mechanics of film production i love kind of the the physical teamwork and the and all the behind the scenes stuff that, that it takes to get an image in a camera. Um, you know, I, so that's part of my education as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, speaking about arts, uh, film school, it's interesting that you've always been interested in the mechanics of film production. Were you also always drawing as a kid? Uh, and when you entered film school, was it with storyboarding in mind or did that was that something that you know sometimes when we uh, reach certain landmarks in life we reach certain professions in life 
some of the decisions feel to me, at least in with respect to me and some of the guests I've spoken to, it strikes me that a lot of the decisions are intentional, but a lot of the decisions are very circumstantial, just something that happened, something that fell into place after another thing fell into place. Did you have storyboarding in mind early on or was it something that happened? And how did, how did, uh, how did drawing develop for you when you were a kid? Um, I would always draw. I don't remember a time when I didn't draw. Uh, my mom was a, was a very good artist. And I think I just sort of inherited some of that talent, uh, but also interest. Um, so I would, after school, I would just come home and I would just sit in my room and draw dragons and spaceships. Um, and then, you know, I would see certain key movies as a kid and that would spark my interest. And, and I would think, okay, that's what I want to, I want to make movies. Uh, I would, I had always drawn. Um, I took a couple art classes in high school, but they were, they were pretty limited. Um, at the time, I remember just painting. We did we did some sort of color mixing and painting with like tempura paints and, um, you know, very primitive stuff. Um, but I went to I went to film school because I knew I wanted to go. I wanted to work in film. And I and I knew what storyboards were um, because I, I'd sort of grown up on the Star Wars movies and, and they published a lot of the art of Star Wars and and. I had seen storyboards, so I knew what these were. I always thought they were cool because it was like, oh, I I could draw like that. Like I could draw, you know, spaceships flying around. And, you know, that's something that I could understand. Um, but I didn't. And I, and I would I would do very rough storyboards for student films that I made or that, you know, I would work on with my friends and classmates. But it never it always was just sort of a means to an end. It was like the easiest way to communicate something. It's like if somebody asks me directions, I'll, I'll just say, let me draw you a map. <laughs> I can't explain <laughs> how to get from here to there. I'll draw you a map. Um, so, so storyboards were the same thing for me. It was like, I can't, it's words are, words are a foreign language to me. Let me draw you a picture. <laughs> um and then it, it wasn't really until after I graduated. This was, um, I mean, I, you know, I went to film school a million years ago. So there were not storyboard programs. It did not exist. Nobody talked about it. Nobody knew how to teach it. It was a very hidden art. Um, so it was only after I graduated and I, and I started working on low budget films and TV shows that I met a storyboard artist and I met a couple of these people who did this work and it was a, just a huge eye opener for me. I just, I thought, Oh, this person talks like I'm, I'm busy making copies for people and getting coffee and, and getting yelled at by, by everyone on the set. This guy sits with the director, draws these amazing images and somehow they make a movie. It just felt creative and inspired and, way more relaxed than what I was doing. <laughs> and it, it was such an eye opener. And even though I knew I had known for years what storyboards were, it never occurred to me that that was actually somebody's job. I just, I, I never put it together in that way. Um, so immediately I, I thought that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do that. Um, and I 
that's I told everyone that's what I was doing, and I put together a, a little portfolio. And you know, it's, I, I didn't have a resume at that point, but or a CV, but I could draw, I could make up little fake scenes, and I and just to show people that I could do it. It was something I could show that I could do this, rather than I'm I'm I've never been good at convincing people I'm good at something. I have to show you here. I should you know you decide. <laughs> here it is. <laughs> I I absolutely resonate with that thought. Uh, so I've always wanted to be a writer. Like since I was very young, I've been I, I was a avid reader, and I was as soon as I discovered that I too can just write something, and then that would also be a story. As soon as those two thoughts clicked in my mind when I was very young, I've been writing, and that's exactly how you describe putting together a, a portfolio and then showing people your work. That's exactly how I've gotten pretty much all of my gigs as a writer, just uh, because I didn't have a network. Uh, I grew up in a city which was not close to where films are made, at least the films or the kind of stuff that I wanted to be part of. And I didn't know any of those people that I wanted to work with. So I would just email them scripts and say, look, here's here's something I wrote. Why don't you just read this? So I don't have to tell you that I'm a funny guy or I write interesting <laughs> stories. Here is a funny, interesting story. And yeah. maybe if you like it, we can work. And uh, that's, that's what worked for me, actually. It's, it's interesting to hear that. You also said that uh, storyboarding programs were not really a thing when you were, when you were getting into the scene. Uh, was storyboarding itself emerging as a more useful thing in that time? Was it not used so much before that? It was very used in Hollywood. It was. It had been used since, you know, the early days of Disney and and Hitchcock. Um, they were sort of the pioneers to 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 use this as a tool for actually making films. So it's been around for sixty, seventy, however many, eighty years. Um, but it's, I mean, now it's very easy to you know there's a million youtube videos there's a million sort of behind the scenes programs there's all these making of documentaries it's very accessible people can can at least see how movies are made um people know what actors look like and what you know it's just it's much more known um when i was growing up it was a secret art <laughs> nobody i didn't know anyone in the film industry um, nobody in my family knew anyone in the film industry. Um, I, I sort of knew I, I, I could, I could sort of pick things up here and there, but there were, there were only a couple little programs that would show you kind of a glimpse behind the curtain. Um, so it's always felt mysterious and magical to me. Um, and yeah, and storyboards, I mean, there are a lot of jobs on a film set and, you don't, you don't hear about what people do. You don't hear, you, I, I didn't, I didn't hear about costume designers or makeup artists or set designers or, you know, cinematographers, but, but storyboards felt even more sort of kind of hidden. <laughs> and, you know, now, even now it's a bit like, oh, wait a minute, that's a thing that, that happens. And okay, that's sort of cool. So, yeah. yeah. And and when you hear about it, it just makes perfect sense that, of course, that's a thing that happens. <laughs> of course, they don't just roam around a scene with cameras at different angles, hoping to come to the right angle and hoping to record it in the right way. Yeah. You know, and some people do. Some directors work that way. Um, you know, and 
Europe uh, has a di very di different tradition that uses fewer storyboards than America does. But um, but yeah, for kind of like a big budget Hollywood film, it's absolutely a tool that's used. Um, and and you're right now it's now there's whole university programs on sort of sequential visual storytelling or whatever they call it. Uh, people are trained in this. People there's comic book schools. There's all kinds of um, you know, avenues for people to, to train in this, in this specific art form. Yeah. So, uh, when you're doing a lot of drawings in a day for, as a storyboard artist, what kind of media were you working on? I started, uh, when I started, it was, it was all traditional. It was pen and paper, pencil and paper. Uh, for years I did this. I, I would sort of burn through reams and reams of paper. Um, and, uh, you know, and people would use different kind of gray markers and, you know, but it was all, it was all very traditional. Um, I was one of the first to, I was sort of an early adopter of um, drawing digitally on, the, on a Wacom tablet. Um, there was a friend of mine who, who I, I'm pretty sure was the first storyboard artist to draw digitally. And when I saw his setup, I, I thought, okay, that I can do that. Um and uh, yeah, so now everyone draws digitally, you know, on a Cintiq tablet, usually either using Photoshop or uh, I use Corel Painter. There's a number of different programs to use. Um, now people draw on iPads with Procreate. Um, there's all kinds of different apps and, and things. But but digitally does um, it does. Uh, lend itself perfectly to storyboards be partly because there's so many changes you're always revising what you've done so it's it's easier to make changes draw the the initial drawing takes the exact same amount of time but changing it is much quicker and sort of printing out a, a new version or changing dialogue in a scene or or whatever you need to do is is much more efficient and then distributing it to everyone who needs it is much easier or even seeing the the history of what you've changed and how you have come to whatever your final image is like on, on a digital front it makes that journey so much smoother to see what are the changes you've made so far yeah yeah absolutely you can you have all your old versions you have all your layers of whatever it is you've got and you know oh it turns out let's go back to version one after after having you know weeks of conversations it's easy to do so yeah <laughs> I'm looking at your Instagram work and it strikes me that that is so different from the work of a storyboard artist. <laughs> so can you tell me how, how watercolors came into the mix? How did, did, did you come late to watercolors in, in your artistic journey? Yeah, I came, I came late and I came, well, I had a couple, I had a, the short version is that I started painting about six years ago. The long version is a little bit more complicated. Um, I studied for a semester in England when I was in university and I fell in love with the kind of the misty green landscapes. I saw a lot of Turner paintings, constable paintings, and I, I just wanted to paint. I felt like I was born in England. My, my parents were born in England. So it was a bit of a homecoming for me in a weird way. And I thought, oh, the, these, this, this landscape is in my, in my bones. I must, I must paint this. And I bought a, a cheap little set of paints, you know, 12 euro or whatever it was at the time, 12 pounds. 
um, 10 pounds or whatever, and one cheap brush. And I would just paint. Uh, I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, I could copy things from books, but there was no YouTube. There were, there was no Instagram. There were no tutorial videos. So I just sort of, you know, played and I think I got okay at it, but, um, you know, and I would do landscapes primarily. Um, but I, I got to a point that I wasn't progressing. It, it got a little stale for me. I didn't know how to, I didn't know where to go with it. Uh, and, and I got bored with it and I got, um, kind of frustrated. And so I put, I put it away for quite a while. I, I just thought, you know what? I'm going to, storyboarding was getting more intense. Um, watercolor is frustrating and, and flat. <laughs> uh, if I ever pick it up again, I, it'll be something different and dynamic, but I'm not there yet. So I put it away, put it in a drawer for, for many years. Um, I would always sketch. I had a, you know, I would carry a sketchbook. I would do black and white, you know, they look, my sketches looked like my storyboards. Um, but then, uh, you know, about six years ago, my wife and I moved to Paris. Um, and I knew that's when this sort of rebirth of my love of watercolor happened. Um, I came wanting to sketch, but again, it was like pen and ink, maybe colored pencil, um, maybe some graphite gray wash, uh, very monochromatic stuff. It lo again, it looked like my storyboards. Um, but then I started to meet some other people who did sketching, um, some other artists, and, and a few of them had a little set of watercolor paints. And it was literally a cheap and easy way to add some color to a, to a sketch. Um, that was my entry into it. Um, so again, I bought another 10 euro cheap plastic set of watercolor paints with one cheap brush and I kind of dove in <clears throat> and now <clears throat> paints are better. Paper is better. Suddenly I could see more images online. I started to meet other artists. Um, we all started to influence each other, um, there were some YouTube tutorials that I saw that gave me ideas about certain things and it just took off. Um, I really, really dove in. Uh, so that, that's, that was my kind of entry or, or sort of re-entry. And, and, you know, I, I remember painting when I was in my twenties and I remember why I stopped and now I'm, now it's so much more fun and so much more dynamic. That's that's interesting because I'm thinking about how my own work with color and I feel like color doesn't come naturally to me. <clears throat> so I've often encountered these kind of obstacles where the dynamics are just too much to work around. It's not looking like I want it to look in my head and inevitably I give up. It's it's such a natural thing. You keep hitting your head against the wall. It doesn't seem to you don't seem to be getting through. So you stop and Sometimes you find the solutions not by not by climbing the wall, but by going around it. Like in a metaphorical sense, you have to find your way around the obstacle. Yeah. Uh, there's this example I give to uh, some participants in my workshop recently. I told them that if you're trying to climb a mountain 
and you're going up one way and then you suddenly see a very sheer cliff, you don't have to continue that same way and then say, I have to climb this sheer cliff if I'm going to get to the top. You go around the mountain and you find an easier way up. And the task is just to get to the top of the mountain. So uh, was there something that was critically different from you in your 20s stopping watercolor work and then later picking it up? Was it like a difference between references versus observational painting maybe or anything that you did differently at that time? You know, I, there's a few things. I, I think that, um, I think I saw other artists and I, I kind of saw what was possible, um, particularly blending colors on the page, using wet on wet techniques, um, really letting the paint uh, kind of flow. Watercolor really has a mind of its own. Um, and if you embrace that and, and work with it, uh, it's much more exciting and dynamic. Um, and that's something that I always pushed against. Um, storyboards have to be precise and clear and they're a communication tool and you have to do them quickly. <laughs> um, and so this is how I would approach sketching and this is how I would approach watercolor painting. And I thought, you know what? No, this is... I'm not, I don't really enjoy this process. It, that that process works for film work or the kind of work that I was doing. It doesn't necessarily work for this more kind of meditative, um, either, either urban sketching or plein air painting or, you know, no one's standing over me with a stopwatch. Nobody's telling me to do that. I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> um, and I can, I can embrace a different kind of process. Um, so that, that was very freeing for me. Um, and then, and I'm the same way, like color again, felt a bit like a foreign language to me. Um, I think primarily because I, I didn't, I didn't go to art school. I didn't study painting. I didn't, you know, nobody sort of, I didn't have any formal training in color theory. I don't know any of that stuff. Um, I knew how to, I knew how to compose, I knew composition and I knew contrast and I knew how to, I knew perspective. I knew how to create depth. So a lot of my early paintings are very monochromatic. Um, I think it absolutely helps that I'm here in Paris because I feel like Paris is a fairly monochromatic city. It's a fairly muted color palette. It's easy to, to draw something in black and white and then add one color. And for me, that became red. Um, I've always loved, I've always loved red. And I, to, there is something magical about the combination of black, white, and red. It's like this triad that just is going to be exciting. So I would do black and white paintings, but I would give it a red awning, these cafe awnings that I see everywhere. And it just worked. Um, and then I would start to introduce other colors, uh, and, and, and now I'm sort of, you know, all over the place. Yeah. I, uh, really, uh, resonate with that point about the colors of Paris. Like on my first uh, visit to Paris, I sort of, it was right after the movie that I saw, I saw midnight in Paris and just a few months later, I was a student in the Netherlands at that time. And I went down to Paris and I thought, I remember thinking to myself that, 
And I'd never thought in color precisely before this. But I remember thinking to myself that this looks like the way it was shown in the movie and specifically with respect to the kind of warm tones that he used, the kind of yellows and the browns that he used with these bright colors then thrown in for contrast, like red. And at night you see the lights in the sky and the kind of contrast that that creates is very evident in this city. It's not that somebody made it up. And I think for the first time I drew something from observation was also on that trip. I just wanted to take these these colors down in some way and bring them because it's so rare that you see this. You see that something uh, looks like the art that has been made of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of, that's an exciting thing because I, I mean, I spend a lot of time in museums, like gazing at paintings and, and it's a way to travel vicariously. And then when you go to these places, if you're fortunate enough to go somewhere that you you can step into a painting that you've loved for years, man, what a, what a feeling. And so I think, I think you're right. Paris is that way for a lot of people. Um, I had a friend who came here. I don't know if she'd ever been, but she, she sort of got off the train and, and thought, Oh my God, it, Every every building looks like an Alex painting. <laughs> I thought there were only one or two, but no, they're everywhere. <laughs> or has Alex painted every building already? <laughs> That's right. I've done every single corner in the city. <laughs> Another point you you made, which was so like it, it's exactly how I've also picked up skills, is from the looking at the works of other people and not just their finished work, but how they approach problems. So. You were talking about that with respect to blending of colors and this particular thing about watercolors, which is that you have to give it time. It's going to do its thing. You have to sort of surrender as an artist that, okay, I've put you there. Now you're going to do some dynamic thing and you're going to dry and I have to wait for it to happen the way it will happen. And then I can add another layer on top of it, which can be so frustrating when you're used to working quickly, when you're used to thinking that I want so-and-so color or so-and-so value here and so I put it and then it's there but that's not what you can do with watercolor you have to sort of fold your hands to it and ask it to please go that way or maybe do some some of your own magic and maybe it'll be something that I didn't even expect yeah yeah and again this is it's one of those things that I do love about watercolor in particular um, I've, I've sort of played a little bit with other medium, you know, and I, I do love, I love pastel. I love a couple other things, but I keep, you know, watercolor is where I play. Um, and it does, I, I mean, I get really kind of metaphorical about it, that it's, you know, I'm entering into a, a conversation with the paints. It's a partnership. Sometimes you're getting along really well. Sometimes you're arguing, um, the, the paper has its own personality. Uh, the humidity of the day plays a part. Um, it's really a dynamic dance. And, you know, I, I talk about it like it's a dance and, and other artists uh, use the same metaphor. Um, it is a dance. You're, you're painting with the watercolor. You can tell it what to do a little bit, but it, it is going to flow in certain ways. You can control a lot, but it's much more exciting when it, when you let it, um, you let it lead a little bit, uh, you let it kind of show you where it wants to go. Um, and I, 
you know, this is sort of, it's exciting and it's a little bit different because I'm, I, you know, you, I think all of us sort of like to dictate <laughs> what we want something to look like. Um, you know, I remember doing pieces and, you know, you either drop your brush or you spill something or the paint flows in a way that you, that feels like a disaster and it's, you know, oh, I've ruined it. What am I going to do? And then later you look at your painting and you think, oh, I, I really like what happened here. And, you know, those are the parts that, that felt at the time like a mistake. Um, but it's, you know, so then I think, oh, okay, maybe the part of the process is trying to, trying to recreate these mistakes or trying to somehow engage in this unpredictability. Um, and that's, that's pretty fun. That's pretty. Yeah, very much so. Like I've, especially what you said about mistakes, like I, I really, uh, so I work with ink and I work with ink directly on my page, no pencils. So I'm always open to mistakes happening and then not being able to hide them or well, not being able to undo them in any way. And what that does is it puts you in this frame of mind where you start to embrace those mistakes. Yeah. And you can't stop your drawing right now. You're going to finish it. Even if, especially if you do a lot of quick work, like I do a lot of 10 minute drawings. So I don't have time to pause for mistakes. I'll just finish the drawing. I made a bad drawing. Okay, I'll make another one. And then you, like you say, you look back at it and you realize that the mistakes have given something that is a little bit more than maybe what you might have consciously added there. What the vision that you had for how those colors would play with each other is enhanced now by something that happened accidentally. So this idea of embracing mistakes is very interesting to me. Was it, was it difficult for you initially? Because of course you're coming from a field where you want to be completely in control of how your image should look. And then to embrace a kind of art in which you have to learn to let go every now and then and let it do its thing. Yeah, it was it was a real change for me and it was a really a difficult struggle. But for whatever reason, I chose watercolor <laughs> or watercolor chose me. I mean, I guess I could have decided to be an oil painter or something else that's a little bit, you know, you've got a little bit more control, I guess. But um yeah, I mean, I, again, it was sort of, it was kind of an organic process that I would, I would draw, I, I would, I would, because I came from sketching, I came, came at it from sketching. Uh, I wanted to do an ink sketch. Uh, and then, so then I wanted a fountain pen because I saw some, you know, kind of old master drawings and they used fountain pens or dip pens and they had this great expressive, um, quality to them so I, I i got a fountain pen um uh and then i would use watercolor but you know everything felt very um very precise and i i kind of i would always sort of evaluate you know what am i doing do i like it what's going on and i found that i didn't really enjoy the process and i really didn't enjoy my results and because it felt kind of labored it was sort of it was very static and it didn't have any life it, my, my sketches didn't have any life and so then I, you know I'd go what why what am I doing wrong what what do I like about you know then I'd go back and I'd look at old Rembrandt sketches or 
you know, Turner watercolor paintings or other artists that, that I would see exhibitions of. And I think, God, these are so, they're so vibrant. They're so playful. They have so much kind of vitality to them. How do I, how do I get that feeling in my work? Um, and so I would start to draw a little faster. I would draw a little bit looser, a little bit more scribbly with my pen. Um, I wouldn't be so precise. I would, I still had kind of the, the bones of it. I, I knew perspective, I knew composition, but I could play on top of that formal structure. Uh, and then playing with watercolor was very similar. I, you know, I, I could pick colors and mix colors and do correct little things. But, but I thought, no, watercolor wants to flow. It wants to bleed into each other. It wants to, you know, be a little bit more lively. And so it's really been this uh, process of loosening up my style. Um, that's been, uh, you know, then it's like, okay, I like the process better and I like the results better. So I'm, I'm, for now I'm doing something right. <laughs> yeah. And, and this idea of letting the, the paint flow on the paper, it's also, I mean, you also thinking about the paper, there's also been a big change in that from your previous work to this kind of watercolor work, because storyboarding is small panels and small, quick representation. I mean, symbolic drawings versus painting on big sheets. Was that so? Was Did you make that change because you're making watercolor? Or do you think that you wanted to, you somehow maybe wanted to draw in bigger surfaces in a bigger frame and then watercolor, you know, kind of lends itself to that. Was was one before the other? Yeah, I um, my paintings are getting larger and larger, um, which is which is kind of an interesting evolution as well. I, I always, I, you know, I think I'll always sort of use sketchbooks and do kind of more smaller pieces, but but paintings are getting larger and larger. But um, it was a direct result of, you know, I, I had just come off a very intense film in LA. Uh, I've been drawing for months digitally, uh, very, very quickly. Um, I was on set a lot. It was a very intense project. Um, and I came back to Paris, uh, when I was done and I was exhausted and I wanted to do something completely different. I wanted I wanted, I still wanted to draw and sketch and paint, but I, I didn't want to do anything digital or fast or sloppy. I wanted to take my time. I wanted to use traditional materials. So I wanted very, a very rough paper. I wanted old fountain pens. I wanted actual, you know, paint brushes and paint. I wanted all the, I wanted that tactile sort of meditative experience that I, that I wasn't getting on this, on the last project. So that was a direct result of that. And I still, I still use paper that's very, that has a, a, a really rough texture to it. Even though I often draw with a fountain pen, I love kind of that rough, you know, I love to hear the, the sound, I feel the, the imperfections of it all. Um, so yeah, it's a, an absolute result of that. Yeah. It's, uh, you you also seem to be going from you know from the first principles to then choosing your medium and that's something that i really like it's not that the medium comes first and then you have chosen how you're going to do it but wanting to be looser wanting to be more colorful and especially 
uh, this part I really liked. And it, it happened the same way with me was wanting that tactile feedback because so in, in learning how to draw and teaching myself how to draw for the longest time, I was really bad on paper and I couldn't do it. And I kept hitting this wall. And as a result, I gave up and I realized I have this fear of which everybody does initially, right? Like of ruining the page, quote unquote. And then at that time, digital art came to me and I got I got a tablet to draw on, on a laptop with and I made comics like that and I could undo so easily and I could <laughs> add colors so easily and change the color at an instant without uh, having had that sunk cost of, you know, ruining my line work. Now I can't experiment with colors. I have to go with the thing that I know because I can't afford to spend time drawing it all over again. Yeah. But then you keep doing that and you hit a new kind of wall, which is that no matter what brush you use, it feels the same touching with that stylus on that tablet surface. So you're using things that have their own dynamic properties. All of these, especially over the years, as these softwares got more and more sophisticated, all the brushes have their dynamics. They have water dynamics, they have drag dynamics, they have all kinds of pressure dynamics, but the touch that you feel on the paper feels the same whether you use the water brush, whether you use an ink, or whether you use some Japanese fancy brush uh, made for that program. And I, I reached a point where I realized that I'm not going to be able to use these brushes properly if I don't know how they really feel. Mm. Mm. And yeah. I was thinking about how I'm using the ink brush the brush being digital brush, the ink brush in the same way that I'm using the watercolor brush. So all my colors look solid colors. They don't have that feel of watercolor. They don't have that opacity thing game going on of layering going on. So I wanted to go to the traditional media and understand how that works. And in my case, once I did that, I never sort of went back to digital in the same way because I started enjoying my ink work suddenly so much when with, with that challenge of not being able to undo. <laughs> so I draw a lot on the iPad also. And sometimes I find myself doing the double tap undo on my page on, yeah. on paper. I know it's such a, it's a weird, <laughs> it's a weird, like unconscious tick. You're like, ah, oh, nope, there's no command Z. <laughs> yeah. Have you tried to, have you tried to zoom in to your page? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I'm with you. There is, there is, nothing like that tactile experience and every pen and every brush and every uh, different pigments have different personalities and it, and it feels, I don't know, it's a much more alive process. It's a much more, you, you kind of, it's easy to fall in love with the process again, because every, every single aspect is dynamic um, and it might, you know, you might use the same palette or the same brushes today and tomorrow and the next day, but it's going to be different because your mood is a little bit different or the temperature is a little bit different or the light, wherever you are, you know, there's any number of things that, that affect these things. And it's, it really does feel like this dynamic relationship that you're kind of a part of. And that's, that's really fun too. Yeah. And it occurs to me that even the way that, you know, you started watercolors for at a, at an early time, and then you were 
you moved away from it and you worked with ink and uh, monochromatic work and then you come back to colors it also occurs to me that we use different media at different stages because of the way we evolve as artists maybe mm. there's a certain benefit to not needing to think about the brush dynamics at one stage of your career or let's say your journey whatever we might call it because it helps you to address certain other problems that you're focusing on and once you've got those things handled maybe now you have the luxury of thinking about how your brush dynamics work or you your questions are now about other things now that you figured out composition once framing and perspective and those initial challenges of not only being able to compose so this this part of storyboarding fascinates me it's not just the technical skill of how you how you uh, get your perspective right or how you compose a scene according to the rule of thirds but also why like what is the reason for choosing a certain point of view what is the reason for composing a scene a certain way yeah yeah this is something i think about this all the time and i'm so thankful that i've had this long career working with really great filmmakers and really incredible cinematographers particularly um talking about visual language and you know learn you know i'm i'm always so curious about this stuff so i'll you know read all these lectures and <laughs> listen to listen to interviews with people and and hear how people talk about this stuff and you know there's there's so much in cinema it's a sequential art form you're watching it and it's move you're moving through time it's like music um and so you can do certain things you can lead a viewer's eye in a certain way um you can lead a viewer's emotions in a certain way um and i'm always thinking about how how can i apply all these things i've learned about cinema to painting um and it's it's looping back because the more i learn about painting the more i learn well filmmakers studied all the painters you know that's how you know painters 100 200 500 years ago knew about this stuff before movies were invented about leading and leading a viewer's eye through a composition in a certain way how we read a painting um we don't just take it all in at once uh we see you know there's a certain center of focus there's maybe a a very specific pathway that your eye is is led through a painting we don't like to be we don't like to think that we're being sort of led around by somebody but but it absolutely happens um you know how we you know the order that we notice things in um you know what what's going on in a composition that how certain things react to other things and how that there is a story that's unfolding over time as we as we look at a static image I love this kind of stuff. <laughs> I think about this all the time. Um I you know, I it's just endlessly fascinating to me. So, yeah. And and coming from this uh, this kind of work background in which you have been uh I mean, irrespective of interest, your work has been around thinking very consciously of composition, of perspective. How does how does this affect you today? What kind of when you're out in the city or any city including paris what kind of scenes are likely to attract your attention how, how do you how do you contend with the various elements at play and think about them on your page i 
Well, I'm always looking to, I'm looking for images with a, with a lot of depth. Um, I, I say this in my workshops. I, I think that it's one of the hardest things to portray a three-dimensional scene on a two-dimensional page. This is just difficult. It's not the way human brains work. <laughs> we can do it. Um, we can do it with linear perspective. We can do it with atmospheric perspective. We can do it with composition. Um, so I'm always looking for depth. Uh, if I'm walking around Paris, you know, there's so many really interesting buildings, interesting intersections, um, you know, different angles of corners and things and, and streets that um, kind of snake off into the distance. And so I'm always looking for some sort of a composition that's going to have a lot of natural depth to it. There's going to be something in the close foreground. There's going to be something in the deep background. So I already know that, okay, if I choose to paint this image, uh, there's a lot that's already working for me, working to my advantage. Um, and then I think about, I don't know, this isn't, it's not one thing after another, but I also think about the light. I think a lot about the light and how the light will, um, will either um, kind of form the shape, it'll define the shape of a building. Uh, I, I mainly paint architecture, um, so that's why I'm talking about buildings. Um, but uh, I love the way the light will, will sort of shine on something and the shadows will, will kind of wrap around a structure and give it a lot of three-dimensionality. Um, so I'm so I'm much more drawn to sort of early morning or late afternoon, um, uh, and then I'm thinking about the mood of of a scene. I'm thinking about the personality of a of a scene. Um, so kind of all these all these sort of ethereal things in my head. Um, I, I think about the the sort of the ethereal stuff and how what sort of um, you know kind of a more rooted in science. <laughs> approach i can take to help me portray that if that makes sense yeah and how the how the color emphasis how the light i mean how the light emphasizes something or cloaks something it's also it also feels like it's so much of the artist in it because it's not that it hides something it's how it makes you feel about the thing that you have regarded as your subject I'm also thinking about how you think, uh, you know, in the sense of depth that you're searching for and the ways to emphasize that depth are, of course, having something in the foreground, having something in the middle and the background and seeking some kind of interplay between them. Mm -hmm. So I've been I've been doing workshops for the last couple of months only. And just in that time, I've had to think about a lot of the things that I do subconsciously, things that just appeal to me and. I didn't reverse engineer it to figure out why it appeals to me. That's exactly but right. <laughs> does that does that happen to you with workshops? Like just the process of reverse engineering teaches you something about yourself. Absolutely. That's absolutely true. I, um, you know, I think it was Liz Steele. Uh, we met in Amsterdam a couple of years ago. There was a big urban sketching symposium and I think it was her and she was talking with someone else and they were saying that, yeah, teaching is a way of, like accelerated learning. You're basically, you're learning something by teaching it. Um, but yeah, that's absolutely true. When I started to do workshops, 
you know, I've drawn my whole life. I've painted for many years. I don't narrate what I'm doing. <laughs> but when you're in a workshop, you absolutely have to do that. Uh, and so, you know, I remember the first few workshops I did, you know, my wife would be next to me and she'd be sort of kicking me. You got to talk. You got to say something. <laughs> um, and, you know, even if it's just like, okay, now I'm using this color. Now I'm looking at this. Tree, now I'm doing this. Um, you're communicating what you're doing and you're right. It is so much of it is unconscious. And then you have to, you kind of unpack it and you think, well, wait a minute, why do I do that? And is that a value for me to teach that to somebody else? Um, I, I do it. I do it because I like it, but that's just because you like it. That's not necessarily a good enough answer in a workshop. But yeah, I totally agree with you. That's a funny, it's a funny thing to, to have to sort of figure out but it forces you to it forces you to put words to your own process and then and then you once you do that then you question well is that the best way to do it or you know what if i did it a different way or um you know it just unfolds this whole process in a much more conscious way that's really really fun yeah yeah i'm i'm also thinking about the kind of scenes that you paint now as an urban sketcher you mentioned that you focus a lot on architecture and a presumption from my end would be that as a storyboard artist, the architecture primarily plays a role as decoration almost because yeah, it's in the background. It plays a role, of course, like it's so important that it represents something very precisely, but it's it's a backdrop to what what the action is. So how does this interest in depicting architecture in itself come to you? Again, I think it comes by being in Paris. Um, you know, spending so much time drawing, drawing people in dynamic poses, drawing conversations, drawing fight scenes, always drawing figures, doing something. Um, you know, after a while, you're, you're just like, I get tired of drawing faces and drawing funny expressions and drawing, you know, hands or whatever it is. Um, so I come to Paris and I think, no, I want to draw I want to draw a building. I want to draw something that doesn't move. <laughs> I want to draw something that has all these intricate details. It's like nothing totally different from the architecture that I grew up with. Um, and so that's, that's what I, that's what initially attracted me to it. I think Paris is beautiful. There's these amazing, you know, roofs and chimneys and balconies, and there's so much detail. There's so much to kind of chew on. Um, but then the more I get into it, I find that I'm approaching it just like I, I think about in a, for a storyboard. I think about the personality of a building or the character or the, what the building is doing or, um, you know, I start to personify these things um, just like I would drawing characters. Um, so... So that's, that's kind of why, you know, I sort of draw, draw buildings because again, because it was different than uh, the storyboard work I was doing, but then I find that there's so much to dive into as well. So much to, to explore. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it's because you're coming into it from this background in storyboarding and from this background in featuring human activity as the subject that your eye is naturally tuned towards dynamic relations between things, how a finding uh, uncovering personality, even in still inanimate life. And 
and and maybe that because it's part of this journey that you're even able to depict and to see life in buildings mm-hmm. and then find something something worth saying about it yeah i think you're absolutely right and it and it's you know again it's coming from california where most architecture is very new there's not a lot that's old there's a few things that are but you know coming to europe where suddenly you see history on every corner um it feels like the city itself has a distinctive personality it might have helped also that when i first got here i didn't speak french so i couldn't have conversations with people i couldn't um i couldn't sort of share in that sort of interaction so i could make up stories about other things that i i spent time with the city rather than the people um so they became um sort of interesting personalities to me um, that that probably played a part yeah e- even the meaning of the word old changes when you go from america to europe yeah uh, i came from india to europe to america and uh, i took my parents re- uh, like just before covid in 2019 we were in chicago and i took them on this uh, a-, a tour of a heritage building mm. and they were psyched up to see a really old structure and <laughs> at some point the tour guide said that it was made in the 1870s <laughs> my parents were just like oh that's just new yeah come on <laughs> yeah uh, yeah it's pretty funny it's pretty funny i've spent a lot of time in england and and kind of all over europe now i've never been to india yet but but yeah you see you know everything you see is at least 200 years old and paris is a relatively young city the arch- most of the architecture because of the history of the city but you can see things that are roman you can see things um i guess you can see things that are a little bit older than that but still you know you can go back a couple thousand years um, it's like okay that's old <laughs> i can hear the bells of notre dame that's 850 years old so it's like you know there's a lot i can see out my window that's older than america and that's pretty cool to me <laughs> that's pretty cool. Are you still working as a storyboard artist? Do you take work in that field? I am. Um I'm do I'm actually working on a series of commercials this week. Um there are a couple commercial directors that I work with pretty regularly. Um commercials are shorter term. They're usually only a couple or 3 days at a time. They're easy to do long distance so I can just sort of I can stay here, I can do the work and email everything off. Um The last movie I did was a couple of years ago. Um uh films I you really have to be where the director is. So um for me that would mean going back to Los Angeles or wherever the director is. So um I've actually turned down some jobs. It, it always hurts to say no to things, but um but for now I'd I'd rather stay in Paris um doing what I do and I've I've sort of given myself um a very short list of directors that I won't say no to uh you know if if one of them calls I'll get on a plane <laughs> um but um yeah so uh I'm still I still do it I still love it um but it's it's a it's a smaller part of what I'm doing these days yeah so uh, the reason I ask is because I'm thinking about what it's like to to change between styles to change between size of work like 
if you're doing storyboarding again you're not thinking in the big sheet of paper you're thinking in small boxes all of them roughly the same kind of rectangle yeah so uh, this this jumping in between things i'm sure one informs the other and do, do you find that it helps to to alternate between things to not be completely in only one style of work yeah absolutely i've i've found that um you know when i consciously started to loosen up my sketching and painting style i found that the next storyboard job i did i was drawing much looser um i uh and and better um so they absolutely inform each other um yeah you know i i do there's so much that i love about storyboarding you are drawing small and you're always drawing within the same shape of frame but there's always implied motion. Um, there's always implied editing, uh, which is which is an incredible, incredibly freeing part of um, of kind of illustrating. Um, but yeah, I love jumping back and forth because you know then I'll I'll sort of work on a job and, and work on a storyboard job and, and be very kind of intense for a few weeks. And then go back out and be like, all right, now I'm going to, I'm going to be a little bit more meditative. I'm going to be a little bit larger. I'm going to have some color and, and try to um, kind of incorporate some of those ideas of motion and storytelling in just one image in sort of a larger composition. Yeah. It's, it's like the back, going back to that analogy of climbing the mountain, it. Jumping between media also sometimes shows you different solutions for the same kind of problems or the same kind of situations. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, I feel like composition is probably the biggest thing that I get from storyboarding because I've, you, you know, so many of these frames, they have to read or, you know, you look at a film and each each sort of shot, each cut is, is maybe only a couple of seconds. And you really, the viewer really has to read what's going on very, very quickly, because then you're going to cut to the next thing and the next and the next. Um, so you, you have to be very kind of stark about this composition and tell a clear story um, in, in sort of a very simple way. Uh, and I think about that you know, even if you're doing a, a large, you know, a full sheet watercolor painting of a, you know, very complex scene, you know, landscapes with buildings and people and cafes and whatever, you've still got to think about the overall, is it a simple, strong, solid composition? Um, you know, that's, that's really important. Yeah, in a sense, if you were to reduce your large watercolor painting to a thumbnail, it should still makes sense it someone should be able to take something away from it even if not the details anymore and that's i guess where composition comes in and yeah a stronger sense of what is your subject and what is your background and how do they how do they play with each other yeah and that's a you know that's also if you think about you know larger large paintings are kind of meant to be you know you're not going to maybe hang this in your bathroom <laughs> you, you know maybe it's going to be in an exhibition somewhere where people will see it from across the room or across a big hallway and so a strong composition will draw someone all the way across the room and then the story of that painting 
kind of changes and evolves as you approach it and you see more and more detail and you see more sort of elements that are going on. Um, but yeah, yeah, you should either, you could reduce it down to a thumbnail or you could see it from, from a distance. Yeah. That's, that's such a good point. Uh, I had that same experience at the art Institute of Chicago and they have amazing, really famous paintings there. And I had this realization while walking through centuries of art, just strolling through it, strolling past it and realizing that some things work at a distance and they call you almost that now they, they invite you to look at it deeper. So you walk towards them and then you realize something more and you walk closer and then you see something more. It's sort of like uh, when you're really far away, you see a pixelated version of it. And if you were to reduce your work to four or eight pixels, would it still carry some information? So I, I think a lot of it in information terms. So you lose details the further away you go. You can't appreciate those finer points. But then there are some larger patterns that you see. In fact, some larger patterns that you might not see so well if you're right up close to it. You're uh, not seeing the forest for the trees, in a sense. That's exactly but if you, if you zoom out, then you see the forest and the forest has a shape. And that's worth looking at. And that's something that's really interesting to me about oil paintings and uh, this kind of art, that it has a different appreciation at these different distances. It has its own value seen from across the room or across a, a big long hall. And then it has its own value and seen right up close and you can see how the strokes were put on the on the canvas. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the, it's one of the things that I look for in, in, great art or what I think is great art. Um, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll catch an image of something, even if it's on Instagram or whatever, you're scrolling and you see something and you think, Oh, wow, that's amazing. Oh my God. And then you zoom in and maybe it, maybe it's not as great. <laughs> maybe it, maybe it loses some of its allure, um, as you zoom in or as you step closer to a painting on a wall. Um, so it's, you know, the trick is to, keep the attention or keep the visual interest from across the room to, you know, 10 meters away to one meter away to where you're staring at it right up close and you're still soaking in. Like, you know, you look at, <clears throat> I, I, I'm a big Rembrandt fan. So any, any, any city I go to, I'll seek out the, the Rembrandt paintings. And that's how those are for me. You know, you can see them at the end of a hallway in a great museum and it's like, okay, now I'm, okay, here we go. And the closer you get, and you can get right up to it until the docents tell you to back away. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're just endlessly visually amazing. You, yeah. you keep getting more information. Yeah. Yeah. And then you can see how things were done. Oh, look at, I see what he did here. And that is not incredible. And yeah. I was looking at the title of your new book. I, I looked it up on Amazon. So sketching techniques for artists and, Amazon also gave me a preview at the table of contents. Mm. And I was a little blown away just by the sheer range of subjects <laughs> you talk about. Did it not occur to you that you could make three books out of this? Uh, yes, this is, um, well, this was, uh, this was my, this is my first book. And so this is my first time working with a publisher. Uh, you know, I, again, I sort of, I'm very used to film production. I'm used to the machinery of that kind of putting on a show and releasing a big project that involves a lot of people and a lot of changes and evolution. So a book is a very similar process in a lot of ways. 
Um, one of the things that I was not prepared for that surprised me was that you decide the table of contents first. That's the first thing you do, apparently, with this kind of a publication. Um, and and they, you know, the publisher really wanted, it, they sort of commissioned me to write this book. And so they said, you know, we want a book on sketching techniques. And I said, great, that's what I do. And they said, okay, what, uh, what do you want to talk about in this book? And I was like, how about painting architecture? And they said, great, what else? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, uh, well, I guess I could talk about landscapes. Great. What else? Um, I don't know. Figure drawing. Sure. How about, how about still life? How about, you know, so it sort of became this thing and, and it was a funny process in writing the book because, um, you know, I've sort of done a lot of this sort of thing, but then to kind of gets back to what we were talking about with workshops to actually, you know, um, talk about, um, teaching certain approaches to these, these subjects. Um, you know, it was a, I had to dig a little deeper for that. Um, but yeah, they, they, you know, they really wanted a book that was a very sort of general sketching, um, thing that, that covered a lot of, a lot of subjects. So, uh, that was, that was kind of my challenge. <laughs> yeah, the, the challenge is, uh, I mean, not only in terms of the different things you talk about, but also in, like you were just saying, in workshops, we learn so much about how to communicate our work, and then we learn things about it again. But that's a verbal medium, you can sort of, you can, you can backtrack, you can go back to what you, you can demonstrate so much more. How, how long did it take you to put down, put it down in a, you know, in a textual format with pictures in it? Did you work with an editor for a long part of it? And what was that like? Yeah. Um, I did the bulk of it in about a year. Uh, I think, I think overall it was, it was almost a two year process, but the first year I, you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing and I was, I would sort of collect images. I was a little bit slow on it. And, and then it was suddenly like, Oh, this, this has to happen. Um, so I think the bulk of it happened actually last year, which was, you know, that's sort of how I spent my lockdown. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, um, I enjoy writing. I really love writing. Um, but, um, I, I feel like I'm a slow writer. I love to sort of think about every single word and, and kind of massage sentences and, and really be clear about what I'm saying. Um, so that took a long time and then and then kind of illustrating my thoughts uh i had a lot of existing images but then you know for a book you've they don't want to just publish your instagram account so um there was a lot of uh, new material um that i had to paint or sketch um you know specific things to to illustrate certain points that i talked about in the book um and it really i mean it's a pretty fun <clears throat> it's a pretty fun process. I did enjoy that. And then, yeah, you, you're working with an editor. Um, they want it to be a certain length. Um, you know, then they'll sort of cut things out. Oh, you know, this got a little off track. Um, how about if we sort of do whatever? Um, you know, so that was that was also a, a part of the process. Um, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, here, what I see here is that, you know, firstly, you have to meet your own standard of satisfaction with what you put out. You have to meet an editor's standard also. One thing uh, novelists often advise is that you should have a very fixed image of one person who's going to read your book. 
and that's the person you you do you can't afford to write for everybody you have to write for that one person in mind and that person is the placeholder for many many people hopefully <laughs> what was uh, did you have any one such person in mind that you thought that you wanted a, a kind of ideal reader who would derive 100% of the book as value you know that's such a good question and i think i think there probably was and now i've forgotten it um but i really i really wanted to i maybe i didn't have one particular you know specific person in mind but i i i've given a lot of workshops at this point and i and i know and i've taught um you know absolute beginners and people who i think are way more advanced than i am um and so you know i would think okay what would i want in a book what would i want in a book if i was sort of the high school me or the teenager me what would i want to see in a book um and i would think about that and i would think about writing things very clearly very um you know try to convey an idea as clearly as i could but also um with sort of emotion and poetry and a real feeling i you know i don't I have no interest in writing a, a sort of a dry textbook. Um, you know, this is how you do blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm much more interested in why we do things or the thought process behind creativity or what motivates us to express ourselves. I'm, I'm much more that way. Um, and that was a little frustrating because the editor ended up cutting some of that out. <laughs> but I think, um, you know, I think my voice absolutely comes through in this book, hopefully. Um, I'm hearing from a lot of people that really, really enjoy it, so that's that's pretty satisfying. Yeah. Does, but yeah, does, does you know, the uh, go on? Sorry, no. I just yeah, it's just to just to convey, just to share. I guess to to share the stuff I wish I was taught when I was younger. That's that's probably what I was aiming for. Yeah, and that that's a great model, especially if you have taught yourself in various ways using the limited resources of the times now we have access to everything we can look at anything online and have a dozen teachers for just the most basic technique and almost spoiled for choice but which is it's its own problem because you know i started you know do teaching myself i guess how to paint you know you look at a lot of videos and you youtube videos and you go to other people's workshops or you look at books you know there's a lot of books out there and you know and then thinking about writing a book you think well how did someone else sort of articulate this this idea or how did you know whatever and man i was pretty disappointed i i saw a lot of stuff that i would not buy <laughs> uh, and i thought man i i i saw stuff that i thought that is plain wrong that i don't agree with that at all and so you really want to kind of be a voice for um you know that's really going to help uh, help people in their own journey, help them find their own voice or, you know, encourage them to express their themselves artistically. So that's, that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's so interesting then to think about how a person should go through your book. So in your mind, does the ideal reader go from start to end, or do you see it more as a reference book that you look at to pick up certain skills in different areas as and when they strike you. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think 
I think it's a book you can dip into any chapter and and kind of open to any page and hopefully you'll find things of use. There's a lot of kind of step-by-step instruction. There's a lot of little sidebars about tools and materials, um, different ways to see things. Um, I, you know, I mean, I, if I start out by talking about materials, I, I, I kind of move in, move somewhat chronologically, but yeah, if you don't have any interest in figure drawing, skip the figure drawing chapter. If you don't, if you'd rather not learn about still lifes, you know, move on. Um, there's, or if that's absolutely your thing, um, hopefully I've got something to say about it. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, it's, I, I think it's one of those books. I mean, I love to read things chronologically when I get a book, even if it's, even if there's things that, um, <clears throat> you know, okay, this, this chapter doesn't absolutely apply to me, but I love to read things all the way through cover to cover, but, um, but yeah, this is absolutely something you can pick up and, and flip through and, and just dip into wherever or whenever you want. And and one aspect of, of learning from a book is of course, to find out about the things that you really, really want to get better at. But it strikes me that it's also really useful sometimes to do something that you didn't think you cared to do. So uh, I've derided still life drawing for the longest time. It's the how to draw books that I would see growing up were about still life and fruit and <laughs> various things on various tables. And it just turned me off from drawing. It, I, I, th- I used to think that this is what I need to do in order to become an artist. And I don't want to do this. So that should mean that I'm not supposed to become an artist. <laughs> and, you know, various forms of gate, gatekeeping in a sense, but also this idea that there's a linear approach. You have to follow these steps in order to be, if I want to eventually draw human figures, I have to be able to draw the sphere and cuboids and rectangles in perspective. And then from that, build the human form, get the anatomy exactly right, know the musculature, and all of these things, they just come in the way of, of finding the joy of what you want to draw. And so in, in one sense, I like this idea, and that's how I practice things, is that find what you want to learn and jump at it. But is, is there some value also maybe in, say, somebody who's interested in figure drawing and picks up your book? Could they benefit from the still life lessons as well? And how, how do you think that might work? I think, yeah, absolutely you can. And I'm, I'm with you. I, um, I mean, I didn't, I did not have formal art training and sometimes I wish I did. Sometimes I think, you know, if I had like a formal education, either here in France or anywhere, you know, you see these, you see certain artists that come out of certain traditions and you think, wow, they have such a body of knowledge. That's impressive. But then I think, well, I don't know. First of all, I didn't have that, so I can't go back in time. But also, I don't know, maybe I would have had a bad teacher that discouraged me at an early age, or maybe I would have been forced to draw bowls of fruit that would have bored me out of my mind. And, you know, so there's a lot of pitfalls in that kind of education, I think. Um, and, And I think we are free to dip in and do things out of order Um, I, you know, I've been drawing figures. I've been drawing storyboards, which is primarily faces, figures in dynamic poses, um, action, you know, people 
for over 20 years, I've taken life drawing courses, uh, you know, sort of my whole life. Um, just about a month ago, I, I did a very intense kind of personal life drawing challenge for myself. And I learned things that I'd never known. <laughs> and, and so you kind of, you, you learn things when you're ready to learn them. Um, you know, I think if you're, if you want to draw cars, um, sure, doing still life would help you. But if it's gonna, if you're more excited about drawing cars, go draw cars, you know, dive in. And then after a while, you know, maybe back up and say, well, what is this? Um, what is this life drawing thing? I mean, what is this still life thing have to offer? Um, you know, why, why would I draw? Um, a bowl of fruit or a vase of flowers and 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 but then you know you, you might find something of value oh i see this is about we're studying light we're studying reflections we're studying you know composition and this kind of thing and then you know if you dip into that then you come back to your drawing cars you'll incorporate some of that and suddenly things will click in a way that it might not have if you'd done things chronologically that's my thinking yeah yeah there, there is no real chrono like linear step to becoming an artist because what does it mean to be an artist what is it that you want to make art of and that in in itself is such a such a big answer today like there are so many kinds of artists that you can emulate so many kinds of like the meaning of a finished piece is so different like maybe 100, 150 years ago, there was a very distinct meaning of the word sketch and that it didn't mean finished piece. But today you can have finished pieces that are sketches. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I really feel that basically we're in the visual expression business. Um, so anything that can help you better express yourself visually is going to be good. Um you can paint very primitively. You can never had a never have a lesson in your life. You can slap paint around and be very wildly expressive. But you know, if you learn about perspective, if you learn a little bit about um, kind of tone and value and um, textures and you know some of these other things, they're all tools to help you express yourself. Um, I think I say this in the book. I've certainly said it in workshops when I'm talking about perspective. Perspective is one of those things that a lot of people struggle with. It feels like a boring sort of headache uh, that you've got to get through in order to do something fun. But I, I relate it to music and I, I kind of think about it like playing the piano Um you know, it, you can sit down at a piano and bang away on the keys and make a lot of noise and you could have fun doing it. It could be great fun for you. It might be driving everyone else mad. Um, but if you learn about chord structure and rhythm and tone and melody, suddenly you can make music. Um, this to me is what uh, perspective is. It's, um, it's sort of the structure behind the art. Um, and, and you can think about that with color theory. You can think about that in terms of composition. You can think about that in terms of um, almost any one of these sort of more technical aspects of art. They're all tools that will help you create the music that you want to do with a painting. 
Um, that's the way I think about it. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's such a good point. Like, sometimes we see these rules as constraints and um, the the traditional understanding of a constraint is that you want to be free of constraints. You don't want to have constraints on you. And But this is something I tell my workshop students that constraints are sometimes the best way to be free. And if you have, say, then there are constraints at so many levels. There's a constraint of perspective that if you can, you, you need to get this perspective right. But the advantage of getting perspective right is that you don't have, like, if you've gotten your perspective right, it's not that your audience needs to explicitly understand it. It's that they immediately recognize what you've done. And they might not be able to put it into words, but something looks right. Yeah. Similarly, if I work with ink, the constraint is that I cannot erase. But the freedom is that I will always move forward and I will embrace what I think of as an error. And hopefully that... So there's this quote that I that I uh, share at this time. It's by my favorite musician, Miles Davis. And he said that once is a mistake, twice is an idea, and three times is style. <laughs> and, and I like to think about that whenever yeah. people tell me that, you know, I'm afraid of making a mistake. And I try to tell them that you should just own it and make a lot of mistakes <laughs> and you might find that some of them are just beautiful like that's exactly what you were searching genius is also inside those kind of accidental mistakes deliberation doesn't always lead to results higher than our own imaginations let's say yeah that's pretty brilliant i i think a lot about miles davis and he's got some incredible quotes that i absolutely equate to art um and I, I love jazz as well. I love seeing live jazz. And one of the things, and I, I do think that for me, this absolutely relates to watercolor painting. It's kind of what we were talking about earlier about you sort of have this relationship with paints and paper. And, and um, I, I really feel like you're part of a jazz ensemble and it's a bit of an improvisation that's going on. You, you maybe have an idea of the tune you want to play and, and you've all sort of agreed on, you know, a rhythm on a tempo or, or whatever, but there, there can be changes that happen. Um, and one of the things I love about seeing really great jazz musicians play is that often they'll make a mistake. I've seen this with, I think, I think I've seen Brad Maldo do this on the piano. He'll hit a wrong note. And you sort of think, whoops, but then he'll lean into it and be like, you know what? I'm going to change my whole chord because let's uh, rope this in. Yeah. And it's the coolest thing. Uh, and then everyone else on stage is like, all right, that's what we're doing now. And it becomes something else and it goes somewhere unexpected. And I, I think, you know, painting is very similar in this way. Something happens and you think, whoops, that was a mistake. And, and then you think, no, or, or like you said, drawing with ink, painting with ink. And you think, no, that happened. And now we're moving on because that's now part of the reality. So now we're going to incorporate that and change our tack a little bit and go with it. Um, and it keeps you on your toes. It keeps it spontaneous. Um, you know, you're still, and you're going to create something unexpected that, that might surprise you. Yeah. And that, that surprise is such an exciting feature, even as an artist to know that I don't know what might happen to my drawing today or my painting and how it might, it might exceed all my expectations. And then suddenly I'm able to do this thing, this, 
this purple crept into my colors and now things have to balance against it. And that's not a challenge that I thought I would have to deal with. <laughs> and sometimes you you reach these uh, with drawings and paintings, you're at the 70% mark and you think that you've screwed it up completely. It's gone. It's not going to work. But then right in the end, you rescue it almost. You some Something clicks and then another thing clicks and all of it suddenly makes sense in a certain different way. Maybe the colors dry and you realize you can do something on top of it. Maybe uh, you make uh, like, so what happens often with me with ink is I make a perspective error because all of them are ink lines. And so that means that maybe my perspective has shifted a little bit. Maybe I need to balance it out by shifting all the rest of my perspective lines a certain way. And I'd never have done that before because I was going for that specific thing. Yeah. I, I love that. I, I was just talking about this with some people in a workshop recently that, you know, people are afraid they, they get to a point and they feel like they've ruined it. They don't know how to proceed. And I say, that happens to me every single time I paint. You, you work your way into a painting and you just think, oh, what have I done? Like, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this mess because I feel like I've ruined it. And that to me, you can either walk away, you can either say, well, all right, well, that's a, we're going to write that off and <laughs> try again tomorrow. But I think that's an incredible place to be because it frees you up to think, you know what, if I've already ruined it, I don't have anything to lose. I'm going to carry on. Uh, Maybe I'll be even more bold with my colors or, you know, let's just see what happens. And it, it's, it has a weird, it's, I, I call it, you gotta, you have to break it. You almost have to break it. And then you're free to, to create something that you never would have gotten to if you were playing it safe. Um, so yeah, I, I love that. I love that stage. And then you recognize that as a stage. And so the next time you get there, you're like, hang on, I've been here before. I know this feeling of anxiety <laughs> and, uh, and I know I got through it before. Uh, so I'll get through it again. Um, and it's just, you know, we're painting. The stakes are pretty low. So what, you're going to ruin a piece of paper. It's like, come on, you know, there's, there's worse things we could do, be doing with our day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So true. And that's where it resembles more most like a dance or like a jazz uh, solo because it's all like in in a watercolor piece almost it's so important so useful there's so much information in the way that it was made because everything is there all the 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 tones and the values that have been realized they're so dependent on the 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 order in which the artist did things yeah, what went wrong maybe at some point influenced the music later on, and had to be roped in whether at an early stage or at a late stage, and that completely changes how it's finally presented to you. It's so interesting because you know when somebody's looking at your finished piece, they're seeing it as one moment in time. They're seeing the whole thing as it appears to them, but the process of creation has so much to do with all the the time related things what you did because you did something else, what you did because there's uh, it's still wet and you're waiting for it to dry or it's dry and you need it to be wet, for yeah. example. Yeah, I agree. This is, this is the same in making films. It's the same in writing books. It's the same um, in, in, in so many, in certainly in paintings. You're, you're presented with a final product and everyone says, wow, that's amazing. And, for the for the person who created it 
it's not a final product. It's a huge long process, just like you said. Um, and so it's, it has a very different kind of personality. And I think it, you know, it's funny when people are learning how to paint, they'll try to copy other people. This is natural. Uh, you, you, you find artists you like, you say, Oh, I, I want to paint like them. And you try to mimic that style. Um, it's much more valuable if you, if you can to mimic the process to, um, to learn, you know, to get in, to get better at the process rather than aiming for a specific result. Um, you know, then, then you'll, you'll find your own path. Uh, you'll find your own way through things. Uh, you'll find your own style at the end of the day. Um, but it's, it's also, you know, every painting is the end result of a process. So by aiming for a result, it's kind of, I don't know, it's a, it's sort of a, you're missing, you're missing a big chunk of it. Yeah. Yeah. Because a, a big chunk of it is this magic that the artist did not, well, they arranged the circumstances for it, but they could not have predicted the dynamics at that moment. Like so many factors, like the wind or the humidity of the day, uh, the way the light ha where you manage to find a place to sit. So many things that are out of your control, but they play a very prominent role in how things turn out. Yeah. And letting it happen on your work is also part of your job. So yeah. that's something that often people don't realize that you have to leave room for something to happen on your page. You have to wait for some magic and it might like that it's it's this dance between having a very deliberate image and trying to recreate that deliberate image and yeah. then letting things happen on your page and it somehow strikes me as also a comparison between working out of a reference photo and drawing on location how, how does that how does that do you you've done a lot of work from reference photos i'm sure for storyboard work how does that difference play in your mind yeah you know i and i've done a lot of paintings from reference photos uh, either either in workshop demos on over zoom over the last year or you know if it's winter and i you know it's i can't get outside um it has a very different feeling to it um i think you can be a little bit more precise if you're painting from a photo you're in a controlled studio setting the temperature is normal there's no wind your light is very controlled You've got all the time in the world. Um, and the trick is to infuse life into a painting uh, because you're, you're already working from a translation. You're working from a flat photograph. Uh, when you're painting outside, when you're doing plein air painting, yeah, you've got all these other sort of distractions and elements and wind and the light is changing and maybe people are coming and making comments and distracting you. But you're also, um, you're feeding off of a dynamic scene and you're translating uh, this thing that's alive. You know, you're hearing the birds and you're hearing voices and, and silverware at a cafe. And, you know, um, it, it just takes on a different energy. You know, um, I think that, when you do plein air painting, all that, that whole environment that's around you, the sounds, the smells, the temperature, it just 
infuses itself into your work. Um, and if you can, if you can still sort of paint, <laughs> um, you know, without getting knocked off your game by, by certain distractions, uh, that energy will make it so much more dynamic and it just has a different life. Yeah. Yeah. So true. I just spoke to an artist who paints in distinctly uncomfortable places. So uh, George Butler is a, a war illustrator. So he goes to refugee camps and conflict zones around the world. Wow. wow. So he's making paintings in Syria, in Afghanistan, in uh, in Bur- in Myanmar, for example. So he's looking at things that are not pretty to look at. They don't invite positive thoughts. And he's painting in a circumstance which is not entirely comfortable. He's like, the weather can be very oppressive. The location, you don't have a feeling of safety necessarily. There are a lot of drawings he's made where he's also thinking in the back of his mind about how soon he needs to get out of there. So there's this this thing that you just mentioned about drawing from a reference photo. You said you have all the time in the world. And that is, you would think that, oh, you don't have the constraint of a time limit. But again, I think about how constraints work as freedoms that it's not always a good thing to have all the time in the world. I agree. Yeah. No, I absolutely agree. <clears throat> yeah, if you've got a... Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing when you're painting outside, unless you're painting in a war zone, <laughs> which I have not done yet, um, is the light is shifting. Uh, the light is changing. And so there is this ticking clock and there is this, you know, you kind of want to capture something or, or depict something. Um, and that's a real challenge, but, but you're right. That's a constraint that, that forces you to maybe move faster than you would like. Um, and that maybe makes you a little bit more bold. Um, so, so certain, certain positives come out of that kind of a situation, which are really, really, which can be great. And it's similar to, you know, working digitally versus working traditionally, you know, doing plain air versus studio work, they inform each other. And so, you know, then next time you're working from a studio, you're, you're going to incorporate some of those things you learned from plain air and vice versa. Yeah. Just like with, with digital work, being able to undo something meant that I would keep repeating it. I would keep trying to get it right and make that color just work perfectly. I never had to just simply deal with what I'd done and move on. So this essential discovery or this, the effect of mood or instinct or getting irrit even getting irritated. If you're, if you're in a, if you're in hot weather and you're not enjoying the day, you're a little, you're a little irritated, you're a little antsy that reflects in your drawing that reflects in your brush strokes and it Absolutely. becomes it it adds character right like that's <laughs> that's the moment as it was that's how i felt so you can see that in my choppy lines so going back to george butler he's drawing quickly so he has to immediately resort to instinct he doesn't have the luxury of deliberating and over deliberating on how he wants something to look yeah you have to leap at what you see if your work like in your work color uh, i keep saying color the light is so important to you and you want to make that uh, a participant in your sketch in your in your drawings it should be something that is obvious the light should suggest something and if there is no light or if it is later in the day or if it's overcast that would change how your painting looks 
So therefore, you also have to leap at what you see. And if you were simply working at your leisure, you might not do those immediate jumps and you might not trust your, you know, there's this there's this thing uh, Malcolm Gladwell kind of wrote about sort of like in his book, Blink. He talks about the importance of trained instinct. So if you are versed in a certain language, if you are versed with colors, if you're versed with lines, if you're good with working with light and shadow, it helps to not think about it consciously when you're working in them. It helps to push that in the back of your mind where your subconscious deals with it or where and it the, those answers that come from it are often faster, more intuitive, more correct than something that you thought. And he makes examples even with math, for example, that you could you could try to, if you're good at math and you try to divide a big number by another big number, there is a number that sort of immediately comes to your mind. And then you go about the task of manually actually running the divisions in your mind. And that number that comes to you immediately. So I don't know if you've read the uh, the book Blink, but he talks about uh, a person who looks at, who looks at, uh, in the case of a museum, actually. So there's an Egyptian mummy or some kind of artifact that has been uncovered and instinctively to the person, the to the Egyptologist, it looks fake, but they don't know why it looks fake. And it takes several years before they find out that it is indeed fake. So there was something in the trained eye and the instinct of the trained eye. So I, I, I like how that play, plays into work as well. And especially urban sketching, when you embrace this constraint that you don't have all the time in the world. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. And I, I think a lot about athletes also that, um, you know, there was a story I heard years ago that Kobe Bryant would, would do 2000 free throws every single day. That was just his practice, 2000 a day. And, and that's just insane. That's above and beyond the, the other training that he would do. And so when you're in a game situation and you're playing against the best athletes in the world, you're able to hit that shot. Uh, without thinking about it, because you have so much training, um, it's just built into your bones at that point. Um, I think I think art is very similar. Um, whether you're playing a musical instrument, whether or or doing a little urban sketch or a painting, whatever it is, if you've practiced and practiced and kind of honed your skills and done all these different sort of training exercises to build up this muscle memory. Um, if you've got to sketch something in five minutes because your bus is coming or, you know, it's starting to rain and you've got to do whatever you got to do, uh, you can do it really, really fast. Um, and it will have, uh, it'll have a strength to it because you've got a certain amount of training behind you for whatever, or whatever word. Um, but it'll also have, you know, a real kind of spontaneity to it. Um, because of the constraints that you're under, you know, you're forcing yourself to do something different. There's another aspect of, uh, well, and maybe you can tell me if this is different from on location versus reference drawing, but this idea that when you're working and you're, you're looking at something and you're trying to paint it, there's a lot of looking and then looking again, and then you, you negotiate a portion of it and then you realize, wait, I completely forgot how this further goes on. So again, you look at, say, you say you're looking at a window and it has elaborate cornices or whatever. 
and you you draw the shape in a certain way and then you look at it again and then you again look at it because you weren't able to trace the whole thing out and i'm thinking about how much value that has how rarely we do this especially yeah. now when there's so much media we are all we've always got access to like everybody's seen everything yeah <laughs> you can't show anything that will blow someone's mind because they've seen it on tiktok or instagram or facebook or somewhere they've got it on their phone somewhere somehow so this there's a lot to gain from looking twice or three times or four times and really regarding something and that's something that art allows us to do absolutely yeah this this idea of concentrated looking uh is something that we don't do nearly enough um i think that you know if you meditate if you practice yoga if you do tai chi there's any number if you knit there's any number of activities that that force you to slow down uh drawing is the one that i love and it yeah it's something i mean i really think of it as meditation you sit you look you observe you you try to depict what you're seeing um that affects how you see it you think oh i never noticed that actually that roof is not even with that one and that window is you know whatever it is um you know and then you know you just sit for as long as it takes to do a drawing and it can the value of that that time that you've spent it might not be in the drawing it might not be in the final drawing someone else might say Oh, that's that's a shame you messed up that page of your sketchbook. But you think, no, that was 30 minutes or whatever that was an incredible sort of practice in looking closely at something. And I now have this image that's a reminder of my time that I was sitting by the canal in Amsterdam and I could hear that bird tweeting and that guy playing the trumpet down the street or you just have all these memories that you would never have if you were rushing through taking photos or whatever else we do in our day. Uh, I just love that, that process of really forcing yourself to slow down and, and concentrate on something. And these other things that don't even translate to your page. So like you mentioned, listening to something. So somebody playing the trumpet somewhere, the birds, they might not appear in any way in your art, but they're there in your mind and every time you look at that painting it it brings all of those things back because you're it's like we just like meditation you've put your mind in this place where it is now open to accepting all the various senses that are around it it's receptive to that and all of those stay with you even months yeah. after you finish the drawing i yeah i think this i'll i can open a sketchbook from years ago and it's i i think this is like this great form of time travel you open to any page and immediately you're transported back you think oh i remember that was such a hot day and the sun was beating down and um uh, but it was so great and the light and the i could smell this bread baking and all these memories uh come flooding back um it's such a great and it doesn't you know your level of talent your level of sort of drawing ability it doesn't matter it's um you could be a you know an absolute beginner and and have that that experience is accessible to you uh it's really really fun and i think that even though you don't see those elements necessarily in the sketch 
you feel them. I think you feel them. You certainly do as the artist, but I think other people, uh, that's the unknown. That's kind of the, the secret sauce <laughs> that's, that's in paintings that you think, God, there's something magic going on here. And it, you, know, you might not know what it is, but there's an unknown there. And, and often I think that's what it is. It's the, it's the feeling that the artist had um, that somehow found its way onto the page. Um, and that's, that's the coolest thing. Yeah, so true. Like you're, uh, you're having a conversation with yourself while you're doing this. And of course, the circumstances that you're under influence how, how you do that job of translating onto the page, what you see, what you're gathering in. And it seems almost necessary that, you know, surely you don't communicate everything of these extra senses that you capture. There's only a fraction of it that you hope that your viewer is going to catch. But it seems almost then incumbent on you that you go out there and gather in as much as you can in the hopes of transferring 10% of that to your audience. It seems almost necessary for the job that you absorb everything around you. I think so. I mean, you know, I, I do really think that paintings and sketches are, they're a communication tool. They're a dialogue. Um, and they're a dialogue that maybe you're having with the subject as you're painting it, but they're also a dialogue between the viewer, whoever the viewer is months or years later um, with that scene um and so yeah you're right it, it's sort of i don't know if it's if you want to see it as your job you know maybe that feels a little too formal but it, it certainly uh one element or one aspect of it is that you are the one communicating this whatever caught your eye about this scene um you're the conduit to to some viewer who might see it later um and that's that's kind of a cool way to look at it yeah, I, I think of it as, well, maybe, yeah, you're right. Maybe job is an intense word, but uh, sort of like a responsibility because yeah. then again, because of how, how helpful it is. And again, referring to how quickly we pass through moments, this imperative that you should feel and not only take in these senses, but react to them in some way. Like if you hear a bird, if it makes you a little happier to hear the tweeting of a bird, that will be reflected in your work if you're listening to pleasant music and that puts you in a nicer, lighter mood, sometimes the, the mechanics of the music, like if the, the, the way that the music is playing itself out comes out in the way that your brush strokes play on the paper. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll, I'll have, I'll play music if I'm working, you know, in the studio or if you're listening to headphones and yeah, you'll paint faster if there's a, yeah, more, you're doing, you're, it's choreographing you in a sense. Right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. The music is playing you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in a, in a sense it's almost it it's an invitation to be more receptive to our senses. It benefits you if you are more receptive to your if you're more vulnerable to feeling things in reaction to what you sense. So music should move you and that's not something that you might catch in simple listening to music in the way that we often hear music we hear it outdoors we hear it uh, when we when when someone's going through TikTok and they listen to fifteen thirty second clips of different songs, but the idea that you should respond to it, or that if you feel something, or if you hear, you see, you uh, 
uh, notice something that you should have some kind of emotional or any other kind of response to it and that 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 is not something that's just a good thing to do but it benefits your work it's such a useful lesson then because it's going to come out and it's going to add another layer to what you just made absolutely uh, absolutely i um i used to well i i do a lot of writing uh there was a time that i was in a screenwriting group kind of workshop like ongoing workshop and um the teacher would really tell us that writing is an energy transfer and so what what you're feeling as a writer the the reader will feel that as well um and someone else has said this some there's an author quote and i forget the author but it's like you know no surprise for the reader no surprise for the writer i mean no surprise for the writer no surprise for the reader um so it's i think it's the same thing with painting and and sketching um you're in kind of the energy transfer business a little bit um so it's exactly what you were saying if you want to convey a mood um it helps like if if the mood you want to convey <laughs> is sort of pleasing and calming or whatever um you know you're going to you're going to use different types of brush strokes you're going to maybe use a different color palette you're going to be in a different frame of mind while you're creating and all of that hopefully is going to be infused into your work and so whoever looks at that will feel that it's they will feel the, that energy um I absolutely believe this. Uh, and it, and it can be, it can be so great. You know, you can look at a, you can look at a painting from centuries ago and it will absolutely sing. Uh, you can look at other stuff that's, that has nothing to say. <laughs> and, and, you know, for whatever reason, it, it, you, you know, maybe it's, you don't understand the language or it's not speaking to you or the artist wasn't, feeling anything that day um but but yeah that's that's one of those things that i really really love i love to think about this and i love to i don't know if you try to force it it can be problematic but if you're aware of it like you're saying it's part of your job almost to be receptive to these kinds of feelings to be open to to sort of being perceptive to this environment and then, um, you know, trying to convey that in your piece or, or maybe it's enough to be receptive and it will be conveyed into your piece without you trying to force it. Um, but yeah, I, I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I imagine doing this regularly also translates to other aspects of your life that if you're just walking down a street, uh, do you, do you do this thing? Like I'm, I'm walking down a street, I'll just stop if I see an interesting tree from my point of view, from my angle, oh, look at look at that tree and how it's poking out behind that building. And I, it, it's such a strange thing for somebody else who's walking with you because they don't see it quite like that. But this idea of being receptive then, and it, it opens up your whole world. It, it translates everywhere. It has an effect. It has a positive therapeutic effect in simply how you regard your world, even when you don't have paper and pen in front of you. I agree. Uh, I do this a lot. I mean, I do sort of stop regularly and notice things. Um, I also take a lot of photos with my phone. Um, so I'm always sort of looking and collecting images and cap trying to capture things that catch my eye. 
and and framing them you know if you're yeah. taking photos from your phone you're always uh, it's it's a useful thing to do you're always framing it and thinking of where it needs to be in that frame absolutely and it immediately turns what you see into a two dimensional image and it's it's always surprising you see something that catches your eye or stops you in your tracks you take out your phone you take a picture and you think wow what a horrible photo that is awful like let's move on you know and so there is some some images are kind of elusive and they they just look better in three dimensions there's something you can't you know once you throw a frame around it, it it's not there um i don't know that's a whole other thing i guess and, um, and that's an interesting exercise isn't it to to then think about why it's not there and what yeah. is that quality it has yeah and uh, it could be something as simple as how, where you focused with your phone camera whether it's a, the thing that you appreciated whether it's a game of colors playing with each other or if it's about objects in proportion to each other and these these questions are also interesting questions I agree and I it is it is a great practice to get into because I you know I think a lot of people you know sketchers or painters they'll they'll see a scene and they'll think oh I love that I'm going to paint that mm-hmm. and then you do a painting and and it and it's horrible and you don't know why and you just then you're discouraged and you know I don't know it can ruin your day um but it might not be your fault it might be you know if you you maybe you're standing in the wrong place maybe what you like about this would look better if you moved just a few meters to your left or right um you know if you took a quick photo of it does the photo convey what you're feeling or you know maybe there's a, a more interesting angle to see this from um so yeah that's absolutely a good practice to get into yeah it, it, it appears that urban sketching kind of lends itself to this habit of looking at it from another angle because so uh, i i think of my art and uh, there's this thing i try to do i i call it sneaky art because primarily i'm always trying to be inconspicuous where i'm drawing things and the subject of my art usually is human activity so people doing something or the other and i'm very very conscious of not disturbing them not impeding mm-hmm. in their life in any way just they they're just my subjects so uh, staying out of their way involves an exercise in finding something that's good to paint or good to draw and then thinking maybe this is not the spot i can do it because i'll be right in everyone's way i can't sit exactly on the sidewalk everybody's going to see me yeah and those guys across the street who i'm drawing will definitely see me and i don't want that to happen so i have to go somewhere else and i have to go somewhere else again and three or four cycles of walking around a monument or a street intersection looking for the right spot and that exercise it's so is so helpful in itself do you, do you have to do that as an urban sketcher do you do you look at a certain thing and you think oh this would be great except i can't stand right here because people are always walking by yeah it's um i think about this all the time and inevitably the best view of something is from the middle of the street <laughs> <laughs> so you're like all right what i'm going to paint this every red light i'm going to run into the middle of the intersection and you know it's like this is impossible um So yeah I I think about this uh and I think that that many people make the mistake of finding the comfortable place to sit or the inconspicuous place to sit and then doing their drawing from there and I think no 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 that's putting the cart before the horse 
you've got to find the right angle, the most dynamic angle or the most interesting viewpoint of a certain subject and then just make do. And, you know, if you're standing, I, I don't know. I mean, it's always a balance because you're not going to, yeah. you're not going to. Yeah. Walk. Sometimes, sometimes you're standing and that works. And sometimes it only works if you're not even sitting, you have to be sitting on the ground itself and only that angle works. So you have to be, those changes have to come to you and you're exactly right. It has to come from what you're trying to show. And then I like this idea that sometimes it doesn't work and sometimes uh, you do something and it looked great, but it didn't translate into something great. And sure, sometimes it's about skill, you know, just purely your ability, but sometimes it's about, and you can reverse engineer that you can think about it and you can uncover what about it didn't work maybe you got everything technically right but if it still didn't work it helps to think after the fact like it helps to draw immediately almost like to go with instinct it looks good let's try to do this let's make it happen but it helps to then later analyze why it might not have worked because it gives you more pointers for maybe it's a matter of perspective maybe it's a matter of colors maybe it's a matter of shadows Maybe I needed to be in the sun when I was looking at it and not in the shade. Things like this are interesting things that that can add so much value to your work. Simply, like you said, just a few meters to your right, suddenly everything is transformed. Yeah, and I yeah, you're right. And I I do I don't want people to get the impression that I'm out there with sort of a slide rule and a you know a, a sextant and a you know trying to figure out the most accurate angle of all this kind of stuff. Um, it is very intuitive and it is very um, just a lot of this is unconscious. And um, I do, I do really think about the emotion of places and how things affect me um, kind of on an emotional level. I do all, I, I mean, it's partly because uh, my mother was a very good artist, but my father was also a physicist. <laughs> so I think I've got these two parts of my brain Um it does help to to be a little bit more analytical sometimes um, if you know that can just be another set of tools that you have to help you create a more interesting image um, it, it's something I think about a lot and I think that it's it's something that I think a lot of people uh, could benefit from thinking about but it's but not if it gets in the way of having fun or conveying sort of uh, the mood of a piece or, or just getting out there and playing, you know, I think that's, that's sort of the key, you know, it's easy to get bogged down in, 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 I mean, it's what we've talked about rules and constraints and all this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, uh, we're, we're engaging in play. Uh, it should be enjoyable. Um, you know, you can analyze it to, to see how you could be, more successful whatever that means to you but um but yeah you know it's about it's about fun and play and beauty i think yeah i absolutely agree there's so much joy in doing this and it's why i also like to tell people that like you just you mentioned this just now that it's not about skill level you can derive the same joy as the master painter without being even 10% of their skill, the skill level has nothing to do with how happy you're going to feel doing it or having done it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that is one thing that I love about the urban sketching community is that it's, it's really just attracts all sorts. And it's a, it's about sort of 
being part of a community and drawing together and seeing how other people, uh, what they, how they see, which is endlessly fascinating and sharing, you know, an afternoon together. Uh, it, it's a really, and it's all levels of skill and, um, and sort of, uh, you know, I don't know, expertise or, or whatever. Um, it, it really, it, will take all sorts. <laughs> and that's, that's really fun. Cause it can, it, it, it lowers the bar. It sort of takes away this competitive aspect that, that can exist, that can creep into things. Um, you know, I, I, so that's something I absolutely love about that. Yeah. Uh, th- that, that last point just reminds me of this, uh, story that I just saw on your Instagram about the nature of competition and how that, you know, how that plays into this, this activity of making art. Uh, how, how do you feel about this? Like, what are some downsides <laughs> and ups? Because uh, th- there are distinct upsides to competition and that feeling of competitiveness, but there's a lot of down as well. So, so what what's your take? Yeah, on you that? know, I I posed this sort of a question or a thought in my Instagram stories a, a couple of days ago, and I, you know, I think I'd been I'd been thinking about competition a lot, uh, whether it means entering a competition or juried exhibitions that hand out blue ribbons or just competing with other artists to get recognition there's this whole competitive notion that's kind of built into our humanity you know where you compete for resources you compete for attention um and i've just been thinking about this a lot and i didn't have necessarily any real conclusions about it um, but it was it was really kind of cool to to see what other people thought about it, to have a bit of a conversation online for a day or two, um, and to and it and it forced me to think about it um, in a different way. I'd, I'd sort of come out really strongly that oh, competition is horrible. Competition is awful. Uh, it, it destroys everything. <laughs> um, you know, we're not. The competition is great if you're playing sports or if your you know businesses are competitive uh in war <laughs> war is innately competitive um but painting you know we're expressing emotion we're it's it's like competing for who has the best dream or something it just felt like we're talking about a totally different language this is competition should not enter into this at all um but you know, I don't know. I mean, I, we can't help. I, I guess, I guess, where I sort of ended up, and I'm certainly not done thinking about this, but where I ended up uh, after a couple intense days of thinking about it was, competition is one ingredient that that it, that it exists, uh, but there are many, many other ingredients that help us be better artists or happier people or more expressive humans. Um, competition is definitely one of them, whether you're competing with who you were last year or five years ago, uh, you know, looking at old drawings and seeing how much you've improved or seeing what you would like to improve. That's a form of competition. Um, yeah, I mean, competing with other artists, you know, sort of playful competition or seeing someone that you think, oh man, I want to, I love the way they did that. I want to do that too. That, you know, there can be sort of rivalries. Um, I think it does get, there's a huge dark side to it that can get very obsessive and very destructive. 
you can easily get discouraged. I heard from a lot of people, it's so tragic. I heard from a lot of people that said they hadn't painted for five years because of comparison and competition. They hadn't painted for 12 years. Somebody said they hadn't painted for 20 years um, because of this sort of comp- this element of competition and, and sort of comparison, which is also a related sort of poison, I think. Um, and that to me is the tragedy. If it stops you from creating or from expressing yourself, oh, that's, that just hurts to, to read, to think about. Um, I think competition, like I said, it's inevitable, but there are so many other aspects like curiosity, like play, like encouragement, um, you know, exploration. There's so many other elements to what we do that it sort of puts competition in its place. It sort of balances out the mix. It's like if you're cooking a big meal and you're using way too much salt. <laughs> Competent, you know, salt is good. Salt can bring out other flavors. It can enhance other flavors. But if you dump a boatload of salt into your dish, it's going to be disgusting. It's going to kill all the other flavors. It's going to kill all the other flavors. It's going to kill your curiosity. It's going to kill your... Um, your sense of play, your sense of joy, your sense of exploration, all the things that you love doing, like kids just draw and play and have fun. Competition, too much competition kills that. And so, you know, I mean, it's a huge subject. Uh, It's something I think about a lot. I think I was thinking about it a little too much, but it was nice to to sort of get some feedback and to hear from so many people kind of coming at it from so many different perspectives. Yeah, yeah, I like what you said about how how kids don't do it this way, and uh, it it like it's something I've felt about that uh, drawing and painting. It's not that they are kiddish, quote unquote, things to do. It's that they bring you back to the time that you used to do it most. And most people, you if you talk to them, they used to draw and paint as children, and then they gave it up. And you wonder why, at what point, what changed that you gave it up. And a lot of it has to do with that that thing that you mentioned about whether, and I think of it as whether your frame of reference for whether you're supposed to enjoy it, whether you're supposed to feel good about it, whether it's internal or if you have sacrificed it to other people and other, and that's where competition comes in. If you give away your sense of achievement to a jury or another artist to dictate that you are allowed to feel good about this one, or you are allowed to feel happy about having done this or not, that's when you sort of, you you you, uh, you tap out of your own innate sense of achievement. Um, there's this thing I read, which was really powerful and useful to me. It talked about different ways to approach any kind of work. So there was a goal-based approach to life and a systems-based approach to life. And a goal-based approach to life is centered around competition in a sense, because it's about achievement. And it's about discretionary moments of achievement. So saying something like in a corporate structure, I am allowed to be feel good about my job if I reach this position. If I become a VP, I'm allowed to feel good if I win so-and-so competition, if I come first. So sure, it will drive you forward. It will motivate you. It will make you achieve a lot of things. But you are postponing what you're allowed to feel happy about until you reach that achievement. 
and presumably hopefully if you do reach that uh, point of achievement you feel happy but then you set another goal and again you come back to feeling unhappy until you achieve that goal because that's when you're allowed to feel happy as opposed to a a, a systems based approach to life in which you do the things that make you feel happy and you do the things that give you joy or you let's let's reframe it you allow things that you do to give you joy rather than the result of them and that's how i feel we differ a lot from children as well children do things because they're fun to do they don't look at their drawing at the end and think oh i didn't draw so well so screw it they they enjoy all of their drawings even the really bad ones because they just enjoy the act of doing them and it's something i feel maybe as adults we need to tap into again i absolutely agree and it gets back to what we were talking about earlier that it's the process not the results if you if you concentrate on the process the results will take care of themselves if you if you sort of enjoy the process or allow yourself to enjoy the process um then it's a value and if you if you don't like the results then you're free to you know maybe think about what would i do differently next time or where did i screw up in my process or you know whatever you can get into it more analytically but i think you're right and you know especially with drawing and painting you know there's especially in our sort of culture <laughs> it's not valued it's not really taught in schools it's you know parents are always discouraging kids from pursuing the arts because there's no money in it you'll just end up poor and miserable and and again the the no money and you know not celebrating it again it has to do with this tie to achievement right yeah. like if there was if you can become an artist who is going to make a lot of money then you should feel happy about being an artist right right and it's i mean that's a weird sort of byproduct of this hyper capitalistic <laughs> competitive culture um you know i mean i don't know i i've made money in my arts my whole life i've drawn i've been paid to draw pictures uh the movie industry generates billions of dollars globally every year uh the game industry makes more creates more money so it's like there is money in the arts um uh i don't know that's a whole sidetrack but um you know i think that drawing and painting and playing and singing and dancing and being creative humans this is in our dna this is what humans do birds sing uh you know humans as well um we are creative people uh and it's a shame that we kind of live in a culture where you know some of that creativity has to be shoved in a little box and put in put aside and you know maybe you know i okay that's great that you're you like writing short stories but let's let's go into something else instead you know let's be practical let's think practically about it um and it's a shame that those messages are drummed into us consciously and unconsciously um and you're right it's 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 about a process of trying to strip some of that away and get back to um just playing just you know what brings you joy you know and don't judge it <laughs> draw draw pictures it doesn't matter if you're good or bad you know or if you're happy doing it you know go for it uh, so yeah and it seems like such an important lesson especially in today's time like i have so many colleagues in 
uh, more traditional jobs whose workloads have increased substantially because the goals have increased substantially because the systems are difficult now you're working from home or you're working at a distance and you have to you have to meet targets and it uh, this this idea of centering joy is becoming more and more distant to us and it's so crucial then especially as adults because kids have it kids have kids know what to do and we take it away from them at some point when we tell them not to like it not to enjoy it yeah yeah so i think you know i mean this kind of sketching or painting it's it's sort of this little window you can block off a, a piece of time where you allow yourself to play and it can be really really freeing and it can be it can calm you down and it can be fun and you know i mean okay if if it's if you're frustrated with the results you can buy my book and and <laughs> learn techniques to improve certain skills or whatever it is you want to do but you're right. It, yeah, it's about sort of carving out a little piece of time to do something uh, that's sort of process oriented. Um, just, you know, I, there's nothing like it because it's, you know, we we have we have so few of those moments in our lives or mo many of us do. So, you know, and it's pretty harmless as well. Yeah. And I absolutely endorse that idea that it's a great idea to to get your book to counter these obstacles like I, I always think that urban sketchers have a lot to say to lot to help other sketchers with and again it has very little to do with personal skill level but I'd love the fact that you have come into your drawing from so many different motivations with so many different uh, so many different kinds of fuel like the need to convey action the need to express a certain script in a visual form and then do it in five different ways to find out what's going to work best, what's pragmatic, but what also appeals to the vision of the director. So meeting these different standards, you have, you have uh, uh, reconsidered or you have examined your own work in different lights. Yeah. And the thing that I love the most about the way urban sketchers talk about their work is this thing that they come at it from so many diverse backgrounds the reasons why they make art are so diverse and uh there, there are books written by artists who are painting because that's giving them some kind of relief from their day job and then there are books written by artists who are uh, urban sketchers who are teaching you figure drawing because like in your case you're able to you have you have spent a lot of time thinking about the usefulness of figures in your scenes and the way that different people play uh, play a role with each other inside a frame. I often ask people to learn from films. Like often you see these films and you don't know what, like you might not know what a storyboard artist is. You might not know exactly what scope of work creatively the cinematographer is responsible for, whether everything is the vision of the director or how the creativity at different levels manifests itself in the final thing. But sometimes you can look at a movie and you know that you saw something beautiful. So it's such a good idea sometimes. And this is something I did to teach myself not only color, but also composition. So I would freeze uh, scenes of different movies at interesting parts. So say just for composition and color, something by Wes Anderson, I would uh, pause it and I'd take, a, I'd take a screenshot and then I would draw it and then try to find out what about it worked for me and was it the colors? Is it the way he plays with the yellows and the reds? 
Is it the fact that everything is straight on? There are no angular shots here. And how how different people are standing? When does he close and when does he zoom out again? And why does why why did he do that? How did that work for me? Spending that time thinking about it. Yeah. And reverse calculating it from the finished work in film and on TV. There's so much value there. So I'm glad that you know you've done such an important part of putting that into a book and you're coming from all of that knowledge and it has to have translated into the book yeah thanks um yeah you know it's funny i when i i teach i started to teach workshops on perspective because i noticed that like people really struggle with that and it's one of those things that you can spend a little bit of time sort of teaching the basics and and it clicks for people and and immediately their their drawings get better um, and I show images from Wes Anderson films, uh, and it's interesting. He uses one point perspective all the time, and it and it's used for it's used to flatten an image. It's used in a kind of a whimsical way. Uh, and Stanley Kubrick also uses one point perspective, but he uses it in a very unsettling way. So it's it's a similar technique that's used for very different results. Uh, so it's fun to kind of unpack those a little bit and see see why like why does this image make me feel a certain way um yeah i love that i love that kind of stuff yeah well uh alex this has been a super amazing conversation for me i have learned so many different things and i'm out i'm actually going to go out and buy your book now because i really want to i i sort of sold the book to myself while talking to you <laughs> and now i'm thinking i really want to see how a storyboard artist comes to watercolors and comes to it, urban sketches <laughs> <laughs> well thank thank you this has really been it's it's always fun to talk about this and it's it's great to just have a, a long conversation about this. So many different subjects, so many different ideas. So thank you. Thank you so much. 